Welcome to Dragon Talk. I have to sing as much as I can because uh, I'm Greg Tito and I'm not joined by Shelley Mazanoble today. I know it's a very, very sad day uh, in what is going on in the world. Um, but we do have some really kick-ass guests uh, today. Uh, Alex Kammer from Gamehole Con uh, was in the podcast and uh, me and Shelley were able to talk to him about all of the fun stuff that goes on at that convention his uh, ability and uh, collection of D&D, or his ability to collect the most amazing D&D collection that I've heard about. I haven't actually ever seen, but I've heard about it. He's got all of the releases from TSR in the plastic, people. Like, that's crazy. Uh, he's a wonderful collector, wonderful guy. He's been creating this convention of Game Hulkon, uh for the last couple of years in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, a lot of history of D&D in that city. So it is a pretty cool con, and we were great uh, to have him on. Uh, he, he, he's a good dude. So hope you liked the interview. Uh, and, uh, I have to just talk about what's going on here in Dungeons and Dragons world without Shelly. So, uh, bear with me as I talk about Waterdeep Dragon Heist. Yes. Uh, it is coming very soon. If I really think about it, gosh, September 7th is when it'll be available in game stores everywhere else on September 18th. It's a wonderful Adventure set in the city of Splendor uh, and has a whole bunch of nice little cool threads uh, going on with it. It's definitely more of a sandbox feel to playing within the city. Lots of uh, denizens and characters and threads that players can pick up upon using their diplomacy, their uh, uh, special skills to try to get around combat or conflict. Because you might be up against some very strong, powerful factions within the city of Waterdeep, and you will not survive if you try to take them out. So it is very interesting. I love it. Uh, I can't wait to start running something in this vein, and you will be able to run it too on September 7th. We also have some fun podcast dramatizations of this story coming out very soon, as well as uh, a wonderful sound set from our friends at Sirenscape. Uh, Also will be available, uh, hopefully on September 7th, Um, lots of recordings were made here in the Wizards of the Coast office, uh, as well as at different areas around the country. I'm trying to get my soundboard ready so that you can actually hear uh, a little bit of these sounds. I'm going to give you a quick preview of something that's coming on uh, from uh, what has been uh, recorded so far. Uh, so this is this is some really cool stuff. Uh, this is what it sounds like to be hanging out in the Yawning Portal. And uh, here is uh, Mr. Chris Perkins as Volo. You be adventurers, am I right? I could use your help. Let's find a table to talk, shall we? Very cool stuff. That is, uh, again, a part of the Sirenscape uh, Fantasy Player. You can download that for free and use it in your game. It has tons of background music for any possible situation you might have in Dungeons & Dragons. But more specifically, uh, there will be a sound set coming out for Dragon Heist that includes lots of the D&D team giving uh, potential read aloud text as well as flavorful stuff of what's going on. That was just a taste of what it sounds like in the awning portal, and I'm, I'm pretty psyched about all that. Uh, and hey, I, I might even use Sirenscape on the next stream game that I play. At least that's the plan. It should be lots of fun. 
Uh, other stuff that's going on in Dungeons and Dragons world, uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage is the companion piece to Heist, uh, Dragon Heist, that's coming out in game stores on November 2nd, everywhere on November 13th. It details the Undermountain, all of the levels of Undermountain, as well as Skullport below the city of Waterdeep. Uh, once your characters get above fifth level, they might want to start traveling down into the mega dungeon below the city of Waterdeep, and that is the release that will give you all the information to do that. Pretty exciting. I can't wait for that. Also is Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, the first major for-sale product that combines the worlds of Dungeons & Dragons and Magic the Gathering, both developed in-house here at Wizards of the Coast. You'll be able to play as one of the guild members of Ravnica. There's 10 guilds in the magic world. All uh, have a unique flavor and philosophy behind them, and much of the stories of Ravnica are told with the guilds coming into conflict with each other. Uh, So you can uh, pick up this book on... November 9th in game stores. It'll be available on November 20th everywhere else. There's also some fun uh, dice that you can get to, to uh, enhance your game of Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. Um, and I can't wait for to, to see players join a party with uh, different members of different guilds working towards the same goal, uh, or you can all be members of the same guild working towards the same goal, maybe in conflict with another guild. Very cool storytelling information, and uh, we'll be doing more detailed streaming video uh, with that supplement in mind going forward. We also announced Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron. We announced, and it's also actually on sale right now in the Dungeon Masters Guild. You can download it. It's pretty cool. It is a 170-page-plus PDF full of everything you need to know about what is going on in Eberron using the 5th edition rule set. It was designed with uh, by Keith Baker himself, uh, the creator of Eberron, uh, with some input from uh, members of the D&D team, including Jeremy Crawford, Chris Lindsay, as well as the Guild Adepts uh, from Satine Phoenix and Rudy Rutenberg. So lots of great work has been gone into Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron, and you can download it now and check it out and let us know what you think. Adventures Outlined is a D&D coloring book with illustrations by Todd James with some fun little snippets of text by Adam Lee on the Dungeons & Dragons team. That is coming out even sooner. August 21st, it will be available everywhere. Uh, I think it will even be in game stores on August 10th uh, if your game store was smart enough to stock it. We will be sending out uh, review copies very soon uh, to those of you who might want to be interested in that. Uh, But you uh, can get it everywhere on August 21st. I think that's going to be a fun way to uh, relax with some crayons and draw in some of the iconic uh, depictions of D&D monsters uh, that Todd James put in there. I mean, there's a Yugoloth, there is a Drider, there is goblins, there's adventurers, there's gelatinous cubes, there's dragons. It's all really cool in that distinctive cartoony style that Todd James is all about. Um, we did a uh, kind of release party at San Diego Comic-Con most recently, giving away uh, versions of that game, uh, or sorry, of that book. So you can uh, check out the video from that. That's available here on our twitch.tv slash dnd channel, uh, as well as on our YouTube channel. So check out uh, what that looks like in person in the next couple of weeks before that book called Adventurers Outlined uh, is available in stores. Uh, I mentioned the Ravnica dice, but there's also Dragon Heist dice uh, coming out in a package that'll be available later in the year, November 13th. Two D20s uh, in uh, that set of polyhedral dice and a cool hit point tracker, uh, which is basically two discs with zero through nine digits on there that you can roll to show off 
your hit points or basically anything you want to track. So, I mean, like you know, uh, charges on a wand or a staff or uh, some other magical item that has charges, you can do it that way as well. Uh, or just counting down days before your party is going to die in a random fire if you're one of those DMs. So uh, last thing I want to tell you about, uh, you know, I've got so much to tell you about, so I might as well do it because Shelly's not here to interrupt me. Uh, we have endless quest books coming out. We'll be talking to Matt Forbeck very soon, but uh, those are awesome choose-your-own-adventure books. There's four of them out there now, uh, each using a specific character class as the protagonist. So there's Escape the Underdark, which is a fighter to catch a thief, rogue, into the jungle, cleric, big trouble in Little China. No, just big trouble. And that's the wizard. Uh, So they'll be out on September 4th and are perfect for uh, kids and adults who want to get into playing a little bit of uh, Dungeons & Dragons lore in book form with these choose-your-own-adventures endless quest books. Guild Force 9 has got some awesome Nolzor's Marvelous Pigments. I should have said Marvelous. Nolzor's Marvelous Pigments. Uh, there are, have always been paints that you can use uh, to paint your Dungeons & Dragons minis. These are branded specifically for Dungeons & Dragons. So uh, there's a Adventurer paint set uh, with 10 war paints, a brush, plus an exclusive Minsk mini, a monster paint set with 36 different paints, and an Owlbear mini, which is awesome, by the way. I've seen pictures of that Owlbear mini painted, and it looks amazing. Maybe yours will look even better. Uh, there's also a brush set. Uh, so if you ever wanted to get into painting miniatures, these sets are the way to jump in, I think so, for sure. There's also Vault of Dragons coming from Gale Force 9. What is Vault of Dragons, you ask? Well, it is a board game using a lot of the themes and characters and artwork from the Waterdeep Dragon Heist story. Uh, I didn't get a chance to play it yet myself, but it was really cool to see all the, the uh, components and board and box uh, at the Stream of Many Eyes. I loved that uh, JP from Gale Force 9 was in the Yawning Portal giving demos to players and fans alike. Uh, it was pretty cool. So uh, go check it out if you can. I'm not sure exactly when it'll be coming out, but they're working hard on it right now and printing it and bringing it to stores everywhere. All right, so we have a special segment today. Uh, it is a sage advice segment, but it was a Q&A session with many of the questions sent in ahead of time as well as some from the Twitch chat. So it'll be a little bit different than some of our other segments that are just a conversation between me and uh, one or more of from the D&D team. This might involve a little bit more calls out to the audience, a little bit more uh, What's the word? Chatty, I guess, is what it might end up being, but it is going to be uh, tons of fun. So here you go. Uh, You got that awesome sage advice last week from Jeremy Crawford all about the multiverse. Uh, This one is another, uh, I don't know, I'm going to say it's going to be an hour, maybe even more. So enjoy it. Uh, And of course, uh, don't forget to stick around for our interview with Alex Kammer, talking all about what's going on at GameholeCon, what happened at Origins. Uh, game fair most recently uh, and I believe also you can register for Game Con too so he'll give you all the information you need for that alright cool well let's listen to these bings and bongs right about now Hello, everyone, and welcome to another segment of Sage Advice. I have uh, my friend Jeremy Crawford here. Oh, wait, this is Dragon Plus. Actually, my fault. But we're using this for Sage Advice for this week's podcast, so it all counts. Uh, well, in, in, in that segment on uh, Dragon Talk, we talked to Jeremy Crawford about fun stuff that's going on uh, within the D&D rules. Uh, and this one is a little bit different. 
from that segment and that we are going to be answering a whole bunch of questions from the community and we're using uh, our hour here in the absence of Bart Carroll, uh, Dragon Plus uh, is usually what happens here uh, to do so. So bear with us. We're using this for two different purposes. So there might be some back and forth going on here. But we want to make sure both of you in podcast land and here on the Twitch channel got to have all of the fun uh, that is talking to Jeremy Crawford, pretty much. <laughs> well, and I like I like to think you and Bart are just having a war over which of, <laughs> which of you gets to have a Twitch show with me. Exactly. Right? There's only so much time that, that Jeremy can lend to this stuff. So we got to... Push and pull until, you know, we get you on uh, to our shows. <laughs> exactly. So uh, there are a whole bunch of questions that can be uh, addressed. Uh, the Twitch chat is one way to do that. Uh, we also collected a whole bunch of them uh, from Twitter as well as other sources. So we always have a bunch of questions to get through. But uh, I believe uh, Lauren Obo Crazy is uh, helping us get all those questions into a place where we can read them uh, from the Twitch chat. So we thank you. I do have it here in front of me. So I'll be monitoring that as well. Uh, but yeah, let's get to uh, some of the, f- the the first questions. You want? You yeah. Wanna, yeah. Let's what, bring it on. What on this per- first page did you want to jump into? Um, I really like the spellcasting uh, question uh, from Rad Radlike. Uh-huh. Uh huh. How would you go about making a new spell list uh, for an existing class? That's a great question, and and I like this question because. It's about revising something that already exists. Mm. And something I've talked about in previous episodes is often even when you're designing something brand new, you want to start with something that already exists partly so that you are making sure to couch your design in the game that we already have. Right. Now, your design as it evolves might completely burst out, sort of like a, you know, a, a caterpillar bursting out of its cocoon and turning into a butterfly. Oh, yeah. But it's good to start with the familiar to make sure your design is growing out of native soil. Right. So when it comes to tweaking uh, the spell list of an existing class, Really think about what your motivation is for doing that. Uh, Are you doing it for a story reason? Maybe Mm. it's because uh, wizards in your home campaign setting actually are known as great healers, and so you've decided you want to add some healing magic to the wizard spell list. Uh, Or you might decide uh, that uh, you're dealing with a version of the class uh, that delves deeply into necromantic magic, and so you want to instead... Uh, add this dark death magic to the cleric list. The point I'm getting at is make sure you have a theme. Don't just say, I want this one class to have all the best spells in the game. And I say that not actually primarily for balance reasons. It's actually for world building reasons. Often I like to say that our design is as much about telling a story about D&D worlds as it is about things like balance uh, you know, making sure the play experience is smooth. Those things are important to us. But what we're saying about your character, what we're saying about the D&D worlds, that's also really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, a class that just simply has every best spell in the game, at that point, if you did that, uh, you'd basically be almost saying that in your world, they're the only spellcasters. And so actually, I just talked myself into if that's the story you're telling, maybe yeah. your story is all the other spellcasters are gone right. and there is only one spellcasting class. Well, then you could just create the master spell list. So again, short version of the answer is start with a the theme. 
Don't just go for ooh, all the highest damage spells or all the highest healing spells or all the most interesting illusion spells. Pick the spells that are thematic uh, and work those into the list that you're modifying. You'll notice with those tips in mind that when you look at the spell lists in the player's handbook, as well as shorter spell lists that we sometimes give subclasses, like some of the subclasses in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, that we've done exactly this. We have not given all of the best spells to every class. Instead, it's a mix of story elements we're telling about each subclass and class, and also stories we are maintaining from D&D's past. Because D&D, for instance, has long held that healing magic is largely associated with the classes that we sometimes refer to as divine casters, whereas the most destructive magic tends to be associated with those classes we think of as arcane casters. Of course, we toss all of that out when we're dealing with a class like the Bard, which is a mix of everything. But again, that's part of the Bard's story. Mm -hmm. Uh, So start with the theme and then apply the theme. And if you do in in the world where you're doing this, if you do have the other spellcasters, make sure that once you're done with the revision of one spell spellcasters list, you've still left a juicy story niche for the other spellcasters. I like that too. And plus it's also a lot easier to uh, to design something when you start from a template, when you start yes. from something that already exists. Because mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but when I see a blank page, it's very discouraging. You know, so if you at least you're <laughs> editing something that is that you know starts from a place that, you know, is good. Uh, that, that's, I, I think that's great advice just for anybody who wants to dabble in design. Yeah, especially as you're starting out. I mean, over time, you'll, you'll get excited by the blank canvas and want to create something wholly new, but always great, yeah, to start, start building on the shoulders of the people you've come, who've come before you. Very cool. All Next right. question. Uh, yeah, this question is from uh, GhostHack159. Uh, can a character attempt to use their acrobatics to grapple an opponent? Uh, like a contortionist or a martial artist with holds and locks, or can you only grapple with strength? So the rule as written is that if you are using the grapple option in the combat chapter of the player's handbook, you're using strength and athletics. I, I preface that by saying the rule as written because one of the rules of the game is that dungeon masters, based on circumstances, can mix and match the ability a score used for a check as well as the skill used for a check. Mm -hmm. And so if a player compellingly describes, uh, you know, this sort of contortionist uh, performance meant to grapple somebody, many DMs would allow that. So I have to basically say again, the rule is written is it's strength and athletics. uh, But also the rule is written is that the DM is free to change that. And I as DM love mixing and matching ability scores and skills uh, because it's a great way to reward uh, creative player description of what their character is doing. Mm. Uh, So I love saying yes when a person describes this awesome way that they're using their ability scores and their skills in an unexpected way and making it possible for them to use that combination in the game. This, by the way, is something that we have started to feature a little more in our books than we have in the past. So people will notice particularly uh, in a few places in Dragon Heist, 
uh, that we have mix and matched ability scores and skills uh, the way it's described in the player's handbook for that option of of using skills in unusual ways. Um, I bring this up because typically our published adventures have followed sort of the typical uh, ability score things, right? skill matchup, and we've realized good for us to, sh- to show by example for anyone who hasn't experienced it at their game table how uh, this is done. That's cool. I like that because it's it's creative storytelling. Yeah. Right? That's exactly mm-hmm. what the game is meant to to do, and I like that people are thinking outside the box, and that should be rewarded yep. instead of you know yeah. you know discouraged, right? That now, makes sense to me. now I do have to say that if you find yourself in the position of designing, let's say you're writing something for Adventurers League or for an official D and D product someday. Often you have to make the distinction in your mind then when you're in that position, suddenly when you're writing professionally for the game, you have to make a distinction in your mind between what you would do at the table as a DM and what's in this book. Because the people who are playing official content expect that official content to sync up with the core books. And so even though everyone listening has heard members of our team uh, say well, we, you know, we do all sorts of wacky things in our games that are not covered in the core books. Well, that's because we're DMing them, and one of the rules of the game is the DM can play fast and loose with the rules. But when you're working on the game in an official capacity, it has to support the game that's in the books so that it, will, it can be used smoothly by as many people as possible. Right. So if you ever find yourself making that transition from being a D&D hobbyist to doing the work professionally, you've got to make that transition in your mind uh, mm. that you no longer get to do all the wacky stuff you do at your table. You can still do wonderful creative things, but they need to be tied a little more closely to what people expect because of what's said in the books. Right, right. That makes sense. Good, good guidelines there. Um, so here's a really specific question that I, uh, I don't know if this is just a yes or no, uh, but... Uh, Armando Doval asks, can scrying create a sensor inside Leoman's tiny hut? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, so let's come back to that one because I'm going to want to look up, uh, okay. look, look it up in the book so that I can actually give a helpful answer. Right. Um, so here, I'm going to write a note to myself and <laughs> later in the episode. When there's some downtime. Yes. Yeah, look at those. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's do one of our old questions. Okay, sure. Um, uh, let's see. What is a good one? Uh, well, I like this one. This is more of a, you have a you question. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and this is from Outprint Mind, so thank you for this question. Uh, which subclass options uh, published in books or uh, Unearthed Arcana are you the most proud of? And which ones were you the least happy with? Like, which were the ones that you were like, oh, those need more work? Oh, wow. Uh, anytime I get asked this, it's always tough for me because I think of especially everything in our books as my kids. Mm. <laughs> so so it's you, know, of, you don't want to have favorites? <laughs> it's like right. pick, pick your favorite kid. And so, of course, the one you don't pick is going to be very sad. Um, so what's your favorite one? Let's, let's start with that. Right. That's an easier, that's an easier so, one. So when it comes to uh, subclasses and classes in our books, there are things I love about every single one of them. Mm. Uh, and that's not only because of working on the text for all of them, but also through the playtest process at various points, getting to play or DM uh, for them. 
Uh, I love the story potential that they have. Uh, I like the different rules options that they represent. Uh, I have always, of course, a special fondness for anyone that I worked more on myself mm. or if it, it ties into my D&D nostalgia. So, like, I have a, a special love, for instance, for uh, the wizard subclasses in the player's handbook because I worked on those extensively. Oh, really? Okay. And, and same with the cleric domains, both the cleric domains and the, cleric, and the, uh, the wizard subclasses. Uh, I did a lot of work uh, myself on those. Mm. And they tie very much into the game's past. They tie into the game's world building, this idea of schools of magic and the gods with their domains. I love that cosmic side of the game. Really cool. uh, and so I love it whenever we do any class design that taps into that cosmic side of the game. Right. So similarly in Xanathar's Guide, I love the Glamour Bard because of its connection to the Feywild. Again, mm. there's that sort of cosmic theme. Yeah. Um, I loved working on the Horizon Walker uh, for the Ranger. Uh, I really like any subclass option uh, as a designer that is not only about the person, but talks about the person's connection to the broader world, uh, mm. where essentially the class and, and the subclass working together give you a window into not only what this character is like, but you get to peek through and you're, and you're getting a glimpse of a whole, a whole world. So then I'd say the flip side is the subclasses that I am less excited about, even though I still have sort of parental affection for them, are the ones that do not shine with as much of that world flavor. Mm. Um, a great example of this, even though uh, I still am happy about many aspects of it, is, say, the champion fighter. Mm. Uh, the champion fighter achieves the goal that we set out for, and that is to be a super simple fighter option. Uh, and it is definitely that. Mm. And for the person who wants to be able to just sit down at the table, have a robust character who can take tons of punishment, that, that subclass delivers the goods. But it, doesn't have it, that does it, it does not give you a, very much of a glimpse into the worlds of Dungeons and & Dragons. And it also mm. doesn't tell you a whole lot about that character outside combat. Uh, and so if let's say we were designing that today uh, – you know, and this is something Mike Merles and I have talked about, uh, we would want to see a bit more world flavor in it. And you can see that in the design that uh, we did in Xanathar's Guide, where mm. you take a look at the fighter subclasses in that book, and each of them has a clear place in the world. Uh, when you look at the cavalier or you look at the samurai, you have a clear idea in your head who that person is, who they are culturally, how they might interact with people, not just in combat, but outside combat. Right. That's cool. Uh, yeah, that makes total sense to me. And uh, I like that questions like this, uh, I don't know if you were a Beatles fan, but there was this one thing I remember reading where someone went through all of these interviews that the Beatles had and like random members of them would be like, oh, I wrote that line or I wrote mm -hmm. this little bit or that drum, you know, uh, was mine actually. Mm -hmm. And so someone actually started to say like, oh, which songs, because they were all credited the same way, right, right. which songs were whose. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's what's happening here in D&D, &D, where it's like, okay, everyone now is, all right, Jeremy did, helped with those, and Aaron did these, and then we'll figure out, like, you know, which yeah. parts everybody yeah. kind of did. And that's, you know, it's obviously a group effort. Oh, but. yeah. I mean, with the, with the Player's Handbook in particular, our whole team was working on it. Uh, you know, we, 
with the wizard and the cleric subclasses, a number of the designers, we were working together on those. Uh, but they were ones where I especially, you know, late in the process, was like, oh, come, come to me, my babies. <laughs> I can do some tweaking to yes. make sure yes. this works. Yes. Nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Uh, well, here's another question because we, you know, recently uh, released the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron up on mm-hmm. the Dungeon Masters Guild. So a lot of people are asking questions about that world uh, and how it works with 5th uh, edition. So uh, Renegades asked the question, uh, what are your thoughts on Warforged? And how do you wish to approach it uh, uh, in the next uh, UA or book or, or, or thing going forward? Oh, and you know what? I bet we got this question before, before we released. Yeah. 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 There are actually several questions on here. It's funny that we got right before uh, we, we did that. So um, you can see in uh, the Wayfinder's Guide uh, what my current thinking is on the Warforged because mm-hmm. – uh, Keith Baker and uh, Rudy did work on the Warforged, then handed it over to us. We then tinkered with it. Uh, and so the Warforged that's uh, in the Wayfinder's Guide right now and in Unearthed Arcana kind of represents our collective idea of, well, this is where the direction we think the Warforged can go in. Mm-hmm. Definitely... Uh, there's room for some evolution, for some refinement. Uh, we're already seeing g- great questions and observations about things we could clarify in the Warforged. Um, anytime, as 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 anyone uh, watching the show who has been uh, an avid reader of Unearthed Arcana and has been listening to our talks about rules knows anytime armor class calculations are a part of anything in the game that always generates a lot of conversation because it there's always a bit of confusion about well if i have these three armor calculations how do they interact with each other and again the answer is they don't uh anytime you have multiple armor class calculations you use only one of them and you choose which one Uh, and so naturally almost always you're going to pick the one that gives you the highest armor class right um, but yeah, we we will be uh, reading all of your feedback very carefully about not only the Warforged, but the Changeling and the Shifter and the Kalashtar and uh, make any necessary tweaks in the months ahead. Yeah. I mean, we know that Warforged is a big part of that world, and so it's yes. going to take a little bit to, to, to nail how it, it works. Um, uh, so uh, this is another uh, interesting question about about uh, uh, your own campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but how have you handled D and D edition changes within ah. your own campaign mm-hmm. world? Is that something that you've had to experience from oh, a yeah. long time running campaign? Absolutely. So before my previous campaign, my campaign had been going on for about five years, mm. and it it started in fourth edition and ended in fifth edition. So we, we actually did a, an edition transition in the midst of the campaign. And I've done that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ex- I've experienced you know, a D&D campaign going from second edition uh, to third edition. And before that, I experienced a campaign going from first edition to second edition. So I've, I've, I've gone down that path uh, several times. Uh, one thing that has always helped in each time we've gone through those transitions is that the campaigns that I run and that I tend uh, to be a player in, although I'm rarely these days a player, I'm almost always DMing, uh, 
is they have tended to be very story-focused and not about the mechanics of a particular edition. So we have generally found the transition from one edition to another to be a pretty smooth process. Honestly, one of the most... uh, um, Interesting challenges we had was going from 4th edition to 5th edition because 4th edition had a different number of levels. 4th uh, edition went up to right. level 30 rather than level 20. So part of that uh, conversion process was deciding where the characters would end up level-wise in 5th edition after we made that conversion. But it ended up, it ended up going smoothly. Uh, we just, rather than also, rather than trying to literally translate every ability that a character might have in one edition to the next. We've always been very flexible on, eh, this, is, this, this option in the new edition is close enough uh, mm. to the one in the past. Um, we just try to get, you know, a, a character that approximates what a person was playing before, and we just run with that. Uh, again, with the focus on, let's keep telling our story. So there wasn't some large event that it kind of happened that, no. that kind of did the transition for you, mm-hmm. just kind of seamlessly did it through, uh-huh. through, through the design. That I mean, yeah. there's something to that for sure. There doesn't need to be a cataclysm each time. Uh, right. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's there's new rules out there. You can, as a designer and a DM, you can kind of just band aid over that, and that makes a lot of sense. Well, because uh, as as some listeners have probably heard me say many times before, uh, in my mind, and this has been true for the decades I've been I've been working on D&D and playing D&D and DMing it, the rules serve the story mm-hmm. and not the other way around. Uh, and I've only ever had a rule change influence the story if it was just a sort of particularly exciting change or, mm-hmm. where it inspired me to think, oh, wow, this change in the rules could represent this kind of cosmic shift. But most of the time, it can just the change can happen in the background. Kind of seamlessly, right? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, all right, well, here's another question uh, from chat. Uh, this is Random AK. Hi, hi, Random. Uh, will there ever be rules for uh, disarming an opponent or ways to go from grappling to restraining an opponent or even other non-lethal options uh, for combat? Uh, now, I know there's rules already in there for that, but maybe he's talking about expanding or she's talking about expanding uh, uh, th- those type of rules or things that you do in your game to do that. So um, what I would say first off is go take a look at the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, I... I often think that this book is the essentially the the trove of hidden treasures of D&D because so often people will say are we ever going to get X and I'm like well it turns out X is in this book that came out 4 years ago. Just <laughs> um, so, like we've even done I think two segments of sage advice where it was like here's all the things that's in the book. <laughs> yes. No and I get it because the dungeon master's guide is such a kind of I often refer to it lovingly as like it's the grandmother's attic of D&D books where you Mm. you crawl up there with light streaming in through the window and it's like there's a little bit of everything. Yeah, you you blow off the dust. (laughs) Like, oh, I had no idea this was here. (laughs) Yes. Oh, so long ago. So I have the book open because uh, right here uh, in a section called Combat Options, uh, there is a – there are options like disarming an opponent, climbing onto a bigger creature, uh, sh- shoving people aside, tumbling, overrunning. Uh, we have a whole section on uh, having lingering injuries like breaking your arm or breaking your leg. It's all right here. Uh, so I'd say dive in. Uh, if it turns out what you're looking for isn't here, 
uh, do let me know on Twitter because we can always explore things in Unearthed Arcana mm-hmm. uh, or a future product. Uh, but I would say often if you're wondering, why doesn't D&D have a rule for X? Give the Dungeon Master's Guide a look because there's a good chance there's a version of the thing you're looking for. And actually along, along that line, here, can yeah. I, I'm going to feed you a question. Oh, go for it. Yeah. yeah. Which one do you want to jump uh, into? Let's, oh my God, I've just lost it. Was it on the other one? It might have been on the other page. Where did it go? It had to do with pets, because this was a big, oh, big yes. topic on Twitter recently. And, uh, and the Beastmaster Ranger. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about... Oh, the one on, the one on pets. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, ask me another question, and then once we find the question, okay. <laughs> and then, then uh, you can ask that one to me. Sure. Uh, are you okay talking about the Ranger? Oh, yeah. All right. I, I'm okay talking about anything other than products we haven't announced. Okay, well, great. Bring I won't ask you any of those questions. I might so, again have to say, oh, I'll look it up. Because, <laughs> by the way, I'm in, in these in-between times, I'm, I'm going to uh, scrying and Liaman's right, tiny so yeah, hut. I haven't in, forgotten in that time, one. You still yes. have to get into those. Yes. Uh, so uh, I'm going to just read this one because it is sum up a little bit of what I think a bunch of people are talking about in the chat. Uh, Draconis says, any chance we will see a UA dealing with the new substitute options for rangers and other classes, subclasses soon? So uh, we have talked at various points about the possibility of having uh, alternative class features is something to explore. Uh, Something I mentioned on Twitter over the past week is we are not pursuing that rapidly right now because we realized it has been long enough since we've done an overall satisfaction survey about the entire game. Mm. We want to get that data before we proceed uh, because the last thing we want to do is essentially chase ghosts because what we find, it's fascinating, what the audience finds satisfying versus dissatisfying Mm -hmm. changes over time. And so if we look at data from three years ago, that data might not be valid anymore. Uh, now we look at we look at our survey data. We pair it with D and D Beyond stats. Uh, we also look at play patterns in Adventurers League. We look at what people are saying in Reddit. We also have marketing surveys that the corporation does. We go to all of these different data sources. Look at the information together to try to get a holistic view of what's going on. And so, again, before we go too far down a road of designing alternative class features for classes, we want to make sure that if we do it, we're doing the right features for the right classes for the right subclasses. Meaning um, you want to prioritize ones that seem to have the most or, uh, feedback on that or, type of thing? Or we might discover there really is not big enough demand for us to do this, uh, and we might discover it's better for us to invest our energy in new options uh, or polishing options that already exist. I see. Um, and like we even, uh, l- you know, later this year, there will be reprints of the three core books. It's been a while since we've issued errata for the three core books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually just approved the errata for the three core books uh, earlier today. And there will be uh, some tweaks uh, in a few places, actually, I think that people will be pleased with uh, that will make it sort of unnecessary to have any kind of uh, alternative features. Cool. Uh, and we will, we will, of course, make those changes public uh, as soon as we can. Okay. Sure. It makes sense. 
Um, here's another question uh, from uh, Chat Alden Seven E, uh, which I hope is not a prediction of which edition of Dungeons Dragons you want to play. Uh, in your own games, do you require characters to have proficiency in a skill in order to help others on checks? Uh, typically, no, no, um, uh, unless it unless it is a a situation where. Uh, a high level of training would be expected. Mm. Um, and here I really rely on the descriptions my players give. Uh, I listen to how they describe the assistance that uh, they're giving. Uh, and my decision as a DM is almost always based on that. And what's interesting is my players in my home game almost never in our couple years of play now in this current campaign have um, – invoked the help action. I'm, as a DM, the one who tells them, well, based you on your that. description of how you two are conferring about this or how you're both trying to drag that statue, you're helping each other, and here, here is the benefit you're going to have because of that. Uh, so again, I'm always listening as a DM. Uh, I think listening as a DM is actually even more important than talking mm. uh, to, to hear not only what interesting things the players are describing that you can then incorporate into the story ahead, uh, but also to always have an ear for what are your players enjoying and what do they want more of in your campaign. Makes sense. Very cool. Um, this might also be a pretty simple yes-no question, but I liked it, so I, I need to read it. Uh, Carrion Worm uh, asks, I read on a wiki, uh, wiki that rock gnome originate from diamonds. So can one be sacrificed to res a party member? <laughs> <laughs> That's outside the box thinking there, uh, Carrion Worm. Yes. So, so, uh, so uh, Wikipedia is not an official rule source <laughs> <laughs> for D&D. &D. Uh, uh, so I would say look at the core books. Uh, however, if in your home campaign setting, uh, rock gnomes are diamonds, well, consult with your DM about potential gnome uses in uh, spell components. <laughs> it sounds like a really dark campaign. It, it does. Yeah, I don't want to be a part of that blood diamond uh, uh, yeah, trade at all. <laughs> it's so dark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, Carrion Worm is, is the name, so that, does, that makes a little bit of sense that it would yeah. be a, a, a dark question. Uh, here's another interesting one that you know uh, goes back to old editions and, and how to kind of use it in, in 5th edition, but um, uh, but but uh, B N A A U K. Um, I'm going to say the B is silent, so nah, UK. Uh, how would you implement things from past edition like aging effects and ill effects from dying and bringing, bringing brought back to life? So um, it's funny. It was the injury rules I mentioned earlier right. were on my mind because I read that question in advance. So what I would recommend is if you want to, in your game, make things a bit grimmer, uh, more dangerous, Take a look at the lingering injury rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Take also a look at the rules for diseases and also the rules on exhaustion. And you can use the different pieces in those different subsystems to really pretty easily concoct maybe a set of debilitations that will occur uh, as you get older. Uh, and I, I hope in, in the real world we don't end up suffering too many of them. Uh, but yeah, you have some inspiration in the books already. 
Uh, we have intentionally not made those a key part of the game. Uh, we'd like to really leave it up to DMs and players how much of those sorts of real-world issues they want uh, to experience in their games. Um, because some people, like, there are some people where they make their characters uh, young adults, others people who are middle-aged, other people want to play teenagers or kids, other people want to, like, I often love playing a doddering old man. Uh, and uh, I essentially... Myself, when I make my doddering old men characters, who are almost always my wizard Cornelius, I just tank his physical ability scores uh, to represent that. Mm. Uh, and so he sort of experiences uh, his age constantly. Mm. And that I enjoy that adversity uh, when I'm playing that character. Because when I do play, I actually kind of like it when my character isn't great at everything. Mm. Um, they often have something they're really good at, but I often find having some sort of adversity really helps a character come to life. And I think uh, you know the 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 um, uh, lingering injuries is a is a good resource there. But uh, when I first read that question, I was thinking exhaustion might do really uh -huh. well to cover yep. just the general feeling mm -hmm. old, right? And maybe yeah. it's not always you have a level or two of exhaustion, but you know you could roll on a, a short table of like one d three and like mm -hmm. how old do you feel this day? Yeah, right. Yeah. And then you know it's some days you're like, oh, I feel mm -hmm. fine. I'm spry. I can do whatever I need to do. But then some days you're just you know dealing with uh, uh, with a especially bad day. Maybe there's a storm coming. And yeah, so, you know yeah. your, your arthritis kicks in. You know, there's fun ways that you can use that as well. Yeah, the, probably the simplest way to implement what you're talking about would be to say uh, in, in this homebrew rule that you create about age uh, that once you've reached a certain age, and the age would be different depending on your species, mm -hmm. uh, that you might need to take a certain number of short rests each day, and if you don't, you get a level of exhaustion. Uh, like essentially, like <laughs> slow down. Yeah, exactly. I need I need a nap. <laughs> I just need to lean here. Just give me five minutes. Yes. yes. Go I do need, some spells and stuff. I need an extra long lunch. Well, now I really want to play a doddering old man yeah. as, a, yep. as a character. That yep. sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, and I think players need more excuses to take short rests mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, did so you find Did you find the pet question? I didn't find the pet question, but you can go ahead and I, I, think I remember we, that on Twitter. So I think uh, did I hallucinate it? Maybe it wasn't just it printed up, but I I, I do like the question. So if you want to answer it, it was uh, 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 how can you add pets into uh, into a class? Right. Uh, no. So the question was uh, it was about if we would consider creating for Unart Arcana a set of sort of simple class templates to add on to pets to represent them. Uh, oh, here it is. Yep. Okay. No, oh, you Outprint found it. Mind. Yep. No, okay, I, got I didn't it. realize that was the one you were talking about. Uh -huh. You mentioned a while, this is from Outprint Mind, so mm -hmm. thank you for this question. You mentioned a while ago that instead of a built-in animal companions to classes, you recommend giving class levels of fighter, for example, to beasts. What do you think about the possibility of a uh, unearthed arcana with simple class options made for companion creatures? For hunting wolves, scouting owls, helping squirrels, etc. I also, I just want a helping squirrel in my life. That's <laughs> yes, pretty cool. Yes, I would love to have a little squirrel who's just there. To yeah, can you get to make the yeah. coffee for me? Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> or just to snuggle up sometimes. <laughs> we all need squirrel hugs. Yes, every once in a while. Um, so, in fact, we have talked about uh, doing kind of a simplified version of the adding class levels to NPCs and monster rules. Those rules exist in the Dungeon Master's Guide. They're pretty straightforward. 
They also have the advantage of being totally open-ended because they allow you to add whatever class levels are appropriate to uh, the creature that you're, you're modifying. Uh, but we do understand that it can be a little daunting for some people. So at some point, uh, there is a chance we would explore a simpler version uh, of that rule. But in the meantime, I do recommend people give uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide version of the rule a try. Uh, you'll find, especially if you take something like the Champion Fighter, uh, that it syncs up really well uh, with a lot of beast options. Uh, you can even use Rogue uh, on on some creatures. And if you really want to get crazy, you could have some magical creature and give it some levels in Sorcerer. Mm. Uh, so there, there are some really interesting things that uh, you can do uh, when you start experimenting uh, with giving class levels uh, to to companions. And when I say companions, this also includes humanoid companions. Uh, and for them, it becomes far easier to conceptualize uh, them having levels in a character class. And also, uh, one of the many reasons I wanted this question to come up uh, is – uh, I think I surprised a little people recently on Twitter when I said, well, the default assumption in the game is that you can just befriend people and and critters and have them come along with you. And people said, well, do we have a resource for this default assumption? You do indeed. This is the th- – I, I didn't plan on this, but this is becoming the theme of this episode. It's in <laughs> the Dungeon Master's Guide. The Dungeon Master's Guide uh, there's a whole chapter of the Dungeon Master's Guide on creating NPCs, and it includes a section – on having NPCs join uh, your party and what the implications of that are. Uh, And so that's all spelled out there for you. And keep in mind when the game says non-player character, that doesn't have to mean a humanoid. Uh, It it could be an awakened tree. Uh, It could could be, uh, again, that wolf I've I've brought up. Uh, It could be, you know, a glorious stag you met in some fey wood. Yeah. Uh, It could be a a, a benevolent spirit. Yeah, exactly. It could be anything. Yeah, it could be some benevolent ghost who's tagging along. Uh, NPC can mean many things. It really just means it's it's any any creature in the world controlled by the dungeon master who has kind of graduated from creature X to person of whatever species they are who has a name, who has a story – uh, might be an opponent, might be a foil, might be a friend, uh, or uh, might even be a companion. Hmm. Or a sentient banana. A sentient banana. says. <laughs> Please no, because if it, if, it if, if it goes off, then there's that, that banana smell and it starts browning. Oh, that's true. You have to have your cleric cast, uh, uh, what is that spell that keeps everything fresh? Oh, yes. Yeah, all the time. You're like, hey, buddy, come on. The banana's reeking again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, uh, while we're talking about uh, uh, you know, classes and subclasses and how they might uh, work together, uh, Luck, luck, Luckasa, Luckesa uh, asks, uh, why are there no rules for something like multi subclassing? Is that something that you guys have thought about multiple subclasses uh, within the same character? Uh, so, yeah, this we get this question occasionally. Uh, it is it is intentionally not part of our design. Uh, subclasses are really designed as a piece. Uh, we design it so that what you, once you start going down the subclass path, that many of the features in a subclass are meant to work together. 
and we have not balanced the game for subclasses in the same class mm. uh, to be mingled. Uh, and not not necessarily because we're worried about you being overpowered, although there are certainly some combinations where you might be. No, we're worried that some of those combinations just wouldn't do anything uh, because sometimes a higher level feature in a subclass relies on you having a lower level feature uh, or a lower level feature might also sort of only fully come into uh, its full potential until later on as you level up in that subclass. So yeah, it's just not a part of the game's design. My recommendation is, let's say you find yourself wanting a different subclass in your class, just talk to your DM, look for a good story moment for it, and just swap the subclasses out. You're not going to break anything in the game mm. uh, by, you know... we. In fact, we did this uh, not too long ago in my home game. Uh, the Paladin played by James Wyatt started out as a paladin of the Oath of Devotion, uh, but because of all of the many horrors uh, that he has faced in our gothic horror campaign uh, and also his paladin having a odd, totally by chance, not because of my choice or James's, but where the dice have fallen, an odd propensity for like every gross substance in the game to end up in his character's face. <laughs> so if like, if like there's, you know, buckets of blood, they're going to end up in the paladin's face. If, if there's some strange sentient black oil up, oh, it's in the paladin's face again. So after all of these terrible experiences, that Oath of Devotion paladin James said, how about he becomes uh, a paladin of the Oath of Vengeance? And I said, sounds great. We decided his character spent a night in prayerful vigil in one of the great uh, temples of the city where the campaign is taking place. Mm. Uh, and at the end of this this night of grim prayers, his paladin emerged uh, from the shrine, uh, now a member of uh, the Oath of Vengeance. And he just rejiggered his character so that uh, that character now had uh, the features appropriate for his level uh, for the Oath of Vengeance. Right. Then that makes a lot more sense rather than trying to pick and choose abilities from different multi-classes that yeah. can lead uh, to feeling like a worse, like you have a worse character all of a sudden rather than one that is what you want. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I love that it's tied to the story, too. Yes. It's tied to mm-hmm. the character. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think that's... That's why uh, Joe Manganiello's Arkin character took the Oath of Vengeance was mm-hmm. because it was, you know, he, 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 it, there was a story reason for it, and that's, that makes the most sense. Uh, so I love that. Um, so here's another question for uh, a subclass uh, and whether it can be story uh, or not. So Zenark asks, uh, would you consider all deities fair game for uh, Celestial Warlock patron? Uh, like, for example, Kelimvor, uh, or is this more meant to be a solar or a unicorn? Uh, for the Celestial Warlock Patron? Uh, So Warlock Patrons are really meant to be uh, full of story potential for a particular campaign. Mm -hmm. It's why they have these names that are sort of mythical and abstract. You know, we don't, for instance... For the fiend, we don't give you the name of a particular fiend. We don't say Asmodeus or or Orcus. It's just the fiend. Basically, you fill in the blank. Uh, and so that means if there is a celestial being uh, that makes sense for 
your Warlock and your DM's campaign, I'd say go for it, even if it isn't one of the examples given in the write-up for, for the subclass. Same for the Great Old One, same for the Arch Fey. Those are really meant to be wide open uh, for you uh, so that you can tell the story that you want to tell for your character. Mm. So there's, there's no strict rules for it. That's no, good to know, right? No, no, no. It's really, that is a, a character and world-building choice for a player and their DM. Very cool. Uh, do you know about uh, Leoman's uh, tiny hut yet? Or you still I'm almost there. Okay. I'm, yeah, so let's... We'll come we can, back. That'll be the, that'll be the, the, the closer. Yes, right. yes. Uh, so in the meantime, uh, Farron Gray asks, uh, any thoughts on expanding ritual-type spells, uh, like the possibility of mythals uh, and elven high magic? Uh, or, or some of the examples he gives. So uh, gives. we we have talked about uh, Elven High Magic, uh, especially in some of our Forgotten Realms books. Uh, that comes up in the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. There's some reference to it in Storm King's Thunder. Uh, there is also reference to it in Dragon Heist. Uh, we have tended to prefer, and still prefer, leaving things like mythals and other... Uh, sort of and mythical magic in general, uh, really a piece of story, uh, partly so that DMs won't feel bound when you all decide you want in your campaign to come up with some crazy magical effect that the elves of old created, uh, that you don't feel limited by a system. Because part of the point is their magic didn't follow the rules that magic currently falls. They falls, uh, you know, follows. Uh, they they did something truly wondrous and also not repeatable. Uh, it it is a unique effect, and so I'd say if you are wanting to create one of those fa- effects, let your imagination go wild. Create something truly mythic. Uh, truly, you know, if people heard about it, they'd be talking about it for generations. Mm. Um, now, when it comes to expanding the number of spells that are rituals. This is actually something we're very cautious about because rituals, it, and this is often uh, sort of hidden. Uh, people don't don't always notice it right away. Rituals are actually at will spells uh, for ritual casters uh, because you don't need a spell co- slot to cast it. Uh, in the case of a wizard, as long as you have your spell book there, uh, you have access to these rituals. And so we have to be very careful about any spell we tag as a ritual because we always have to do the mental exercise. Are we okay with this spell being cast at will? Okay, again, for balance reasons and for world-building and storytelling reasons. Uh, So that's why uh, we do not release a whole ton of rituals for the game. You also notice we don't release a whole ton of cantrips for the game, and it's for a similar reason. As soon as... Any piece of magic becomes usable at will. If you're designing it, you need to ask the question, uh, am I okay with this happening over and over and over and over and over again? And what would the implications be for the world? Uh, we, we at one point uh, had a number of spells in our early design of 5th edition that were rituals uh, or um, cantrips, and we changed them so that they weren't because we realized they had terrible world-building implications. Uh, I believe, I'm trying to remember which one of it, we, one of the spells having to do with creating large quantities of water at one point was either a ritual or a cantrip. And we realized mm. this spell alone would uh, 
undermine all of a setting like Dark Sun. Uh, so we, we have to make sure we don't just hand out, you know, we set up an entire campaign or setting where there, there is this core conflict or this, this core bit of scarcity that the whole campaign is about struggling with. And we have a first level spell that solves it. <laughs> yeah, right. so you can cast at will. All it takes is ten minutes, and you have all the water that we can feed. This, yes. or, you know, that, that yeah. a, a village would drink in, yep. in a week, right? Uh, the the other thing, quite frankly, when it comes to anything that is usable at will, not just magic, but this also goes for non magical abilities. There's also uh, an annoyance test. I always think. Uh, I'll pause when I'm evaluating a piece of design that I've done or someone else on the team has done. I think, all right, if this thing can be used without limit, is it going to annoy the hell out of me <laughs> for this thing to be used over and over and over again? As a session master. Yes. Yeah. Because D&D has at its core a certain social contract. It's a co-op game. It's a friendly game that we, where we gather together to play. And many of us self-police. Uh, but most of us have had the experience of being at the table with the person who doesn't self-police, where because the game has put the red button in front of them and they realize they can just press it over mm. and over again. Basically, I like to put as few of those red buttons in the game as possible right. uh, just to make sure it remains a friendly co-op game and that, that people are not getting to the end of a session and being like, oh, my God, is Bob using that ability for the 50th time in, right. the, you know, in the last 90 minutes? And now, so that answers a little bit of a question here in the chat, which was like, why wouldn't that water creating spell just be banned for use in in something like Dark Sun or something like that? But it's it's mostly to prevent what you're talking about now, where it's like if it's as written, you don't want to have to continually say like, no, that button you cannot press. Yeah, and and it's also it's also about making sure we continue to tell a story we're comfortable with about our spellcasters. Uh, you can imagine that if our if low level spellcasters in D and D had the answer for every mundane problem, and could and could answer every mundane problem on a large scale, that would change the shape of all of our D and D worlds. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. many of those spellcasters would become either the rulers of all nations, um, or they would be uh, almost like indentured magic servants forced to use these wondrous abilities to solve all of society's problems all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, a person listening might think, yeah, but like a low-level cleric can just heal people's wounds. But a low-level cleric cannot do that that many times per day. Um, a low-level cleric can't just walk around raising everybody from the dead. Uh, a low-level cleric can't, you know, every day fill you know, every well with water, you know, 50 miles around. Uh, Low-level cleric can do some of those things, a little taste of those things. Right. So, again, we always think about what's the implication for the, for the worlds of D&D &D mm -hmm. and for a campaign. Um, here's a very good question uh, that I think you're the only person who could possibly answer it. Uh, this is from the Dark Lorax. Uh, who is the Will most cantrip use as a target, and why does he deserve so much ire? The wait, the who? What? The will. 
It's an at-will joke. Oh, got it. <laughs> puns. <laughs> I did that specifically because <laughs> no, you love puns. No, I do not. <laughs> but I always appreciate them. <laughs> I always, I because part of my shtick is, of course, I always say I don't like them, but then I, I'm but then on, you actually, but I actually yeah, do. It's part of yes, the shtick is yes. that you have to be like, oh, yes, you got me you again. You got me again, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so scrying, do you want to you want to try and hit scrying? Up? Uh, not yet. Keep okay. going. All right. Uh, uh, is there? I'm going to keep uh, Armando waiting until the very the, end. I know this is this is good programming. Uh, so Hollow Vex asks: uh, Is there a spell level limit you have for creating ritual spells? Uh, you don't want to necessarily have a ninth level ritual spell. Uh, yeah, you'll notice that most of our rituals are at mid uh, to low level. And again, that's because they are effectively very slow at-will spells. Mm. Uh, so that's one reason why you are unlikely to ever see many high-level ones. Uh, because high-level spells are, are often just wackadoo on purpose. It's why we constrain how many spell slots uh, you get at those upper, you know, upper levels. Where you know you'll look, you'll look at your table of spell slots, and you get, you go down the slope, and you get down there, and you're like, oh, just one, and it never goes up. That's on purpose because then that allows us to make ninth level spells, for instance, just crazy bonkers. Yeah, they can um, really feel uh, like you're game changing yep. at, at some level. Yeah. But you get that crazy bonkers no more than once a day. Uh, <laughs> and and that's very much on purpose. We don't, to go back to the red button thing I mentioned before, we do not want you to have a a ninth level spell that's a button you can just keep pushing and just as long as you spend, you know, 10 minutes doing it as a ritual. What about, and this is just me spitballing a little bit here, but like what about the the, if there was an additional thing like this ritual takes... 24 hours or this ritual spell actually needs uh, you know a week of casting time by nine ninth level spells or something that like gives it more of a thing obviously a dungeon master can do this you know no matter what but if there is there some design space there that would be really fun for plot reasons so at, at that point we would probably just break out of the spell system and make it a piece of ad hoc design mm-hmm. where this is just this extraordinary magical process that you must go through and you perform this right over this you know course of days with a particular effect if we decided we wanted to bind it up in the spellcasting system. Uh, I still wouldn't want it to be a ritual because, it's, it, like, if again, if it's at ninth level, I'm probably going to want to tax your ninth level slot each day you you are spending uh, casting that that ninth level ritual. Because if it's a ninth level ritual, remember ninth level, you're casting things like wish. Good grief! Mm. That should be mighty magic and should be tapping into your store of magical energy uh, and making it also, again, as a designer, I don't want you to still have Wish in your back pocket every day. Uh, I want to make sure if you are engaged each day in ninth level magic, uh, you're you're paying the cost. Uh, It is meant to be costly. It is meant to be heavily constrained. Uh, we want you, if you're if you're casting magic repeatedly, to rely on your lower level spell slots. Uh, that's what they're there for. Makes sense. Very cool. All right, one more, and then I think we have to get to uh, the the scrying answer. Um, this one is from Long Tom Dewey. Mm-hmm. When a vampire bite deals necrotic damage that lowers max HP and piercing damage, which happens first? Oh, that's a good question. Here, let's take a look. Okay. 
So I can – before I get to the vampire, I can tell you that when we write a monster stat block and often you'll see in the hit line – uh, it will say something like, the, you know, the monster deals seven bludgeoning damage plus six lightning damage or – and then, you know, make a constitution saving throw and if you fail, um, you're sad for a day or whatever the effect, <laughs> whatever the effect is. Um, so we write those with the assumption that you're going to do them in order. Uh, it, it, a DM doesn't have to follow that but it's good, it's good to know that – we write them in that order with the expectation that you will resolve them in that order. If ever it is absolutely crucial uh, that they happen in a particular order, you will often see words like, and then something happens to make sure it's clear to you this sequence is vital. Mm. Uh, so specifically uh, with the vampire, um, here it just says seven piercing damage plus 10 necrotic damage. You'll notice there is no and then here. Uh, and you could honestly apply these damage values uh, in uh, either order uh, given the wording here. Uh, default is just go with the order uh, that's printed, uh, but you're certainly not going to break anything if the necrotic damage uh, is applied and then the piercing damage. In actual play, Often uh, as a DM, especially in my home game where I start to become very familiar with my players' characters, if I know none of them has any relevant ability that applies to the damage types in play, uh, I will just give them the total. I would just say you take 17 damage. Mm -hmm. um, but that's only if I know for sure nobody has something that's going to give them resistance to necrotic damage. Uh, no one is uh, vulnerable to either of these damage types. And so that means when I'm – let's say I'm at a convention DMing an Adventurer's League game and I'm DMing for characters I'm unfamiliar with, mm -hmm. then I do very carefully state – each amount of damage and which damage type is going out because I don't know uh, if a character at the table uh, is going to be able to resist uh, some or all of that particular ability or be vulnerable to it. You know. Right. But what about some attacks that, that uh, in this question, uh, lower max HP? Mm. Does that happen before or after? Oh, that happens after. So you'll notice um, – all right, let's go back to the vampire. Sorry, I missed I missed that part of the question. Yeah, I think I think that's what the guy is trying to get or the person is trying to get at. Okay, because thank you. that is uh All right. So, uh you take the damage uh and yeah, so here here take the sentences in their order. So, you have the first one. You take the 7 piercing plus the 10 necrotic. The targets and then once you've read that, the target's hit point maximum is reduced by an amount equal to the necrotic damage taken. So, yeah, the not, not only has the necrotic damage t happened already, this is written assuming all that damage in that previous sentence has already happened. Uh, we don't – we do not write our sentences with the idea they're going to just be randomly <laughs> reordered or scrambled. Uh, just deal with them in order uh, and uh, you'll be good. Awesome. All right. Well – uh, we're, we're past time, so we want to get to uh, the scrying uh, question. All right. Uh, yes. Which, so in case you are only listening now, I will refind it so uh -huh. that we can uh, get it going for you. Where did I put it now? I think it was in the chat. You, you and, were right. And I remember the question. Armando was asking, is it possible to have a scrying sensor appear inside Leoman's tiny hut? That's it. So for those of you who don't have the spells right in front of you the way I do um, – <laughs> 
scrying lets you scry on a particular person. Uh, it also uh, allows you to uh, scry on a location. And when you do that, uh, you know, when you're, you're peeking in uh, on a place uh, a, or a person, an invisible scrying sensor appears there. Now, the reason why this question is coming up is Leoman's Tiny Hut specifies that spells and other magical effects can't extend through the dome uh, or be cast through it. And so really, the question is, does a scrying sensor sort of popping into being next to somebody inside Leoman's Tiny Hut count as going uh, through it? Uh, I, I, as a DM... Uh, and again, many of you who have listened to me for a while uh, know I often say this. I interpret things in the way most generous to my players. And so if, if they erected Leoman's tiny hut with the expectation – and because often this spell is used to essentially hide out, uh, I would make it so that that scrying sensor was not going to, to pop into being there. I, that said though, rules as written, it is a little gray and I know that's why the question came up because the sensor is not literally passing through and Lehman's Tiny Hut, if I was going to, let's say, just lay aside my generosity as a DM but instead <laughs> give a kind of rules as written interpretation, I would say that sensor is not passing through and could just uh, pop into being uh, mm. next to the person. Uh, because really, Leoman's Tiny Hut is imagining things like lightning bolts shooting uh, at you, things that you know would actually pass through a barrier. It's not really getting at something like uh, you know a person suddenly bamfing into place or a, right. or a thing bamfing uh, right next to you. For those of you who do not read old Marvel comics, bamf is the sound that Nightcrawler makes <laughs> when he teleports. I realize sometimes I just say bamf and like these people probably have not read the X Men. I, I, I knew what you meant though. It's a <laughs> burnt, you know, poof of, of smoke and appearing. That makes total sense. Yes, because because my 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 nerdery is is broad and deep. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I would say Armando. Uh, Rules is written. I uh, Leoman's tiny hut is not going to stop it, but uh, rules as sort of fun. Uh, the way I would interpret it for my players, uh, I would give it to them uh, that their little hut is is keeping that that prying eye nice. out out, right, out well, of their way. There's other there's other protection spells that they might want to cast in addition to that yes. as well. But yeah, because um, honestly, if they're really attempting to escape. Uh, detection. Mm-hmm. There are other spells in the game uh, that give you protection from various divination from effects. That type of stuff, right? Yeah. That makes yeah. total sense. All right, well, we are well past time. Uh, we got one question here that is pertinent to my next uh, part of, of this segment is, mm-hmm. how can people get in touch with you uh, to ask you questions about D&D rules or anything else? Uh, the best place is on Twitter, uh, and I'm actually looking at the monitor see my Twitter handle there, uh, Jeremy E. Crawford. I uh, get asked sometimes, what does the E stand for? It's my middle name, Eric. Uh, so yeah, Jeremy E. Crawford, please send your questions there. Because Twitter loves to devour my notifications, I sometimes don't see your questions. I'm not ignoring you. Sometimes Twitter is just very hungry and ate your questions. So <laughs> if if I don't answer it, uh, give it a week or two and try again. Uh, and I, I always like eventually. Uh, to get to the questions. Also, if you take a look at the Sage Advice Compendium PDF, 
there are a number of my old rules answers there collected. Uh, the sageadvice.eu website also has collected a bunch of my uh, Twitter answers. So there are resources available uh, if you're looking for one of my, my old rules answers. And I, every month, uh, answer some new rules questions uh, there on Twitter. If there's, uh, you know, some people out there don't use uh, Twitter, uh, is there any other way to get questions to you other than when we do these, these Q&A sessions? Uh, those are the best ways. Yeah. Uh, we, do have, we do have a Sage Advice uh, email inbox, uh, but it tends to be a <laughs> but bit— But don't go there. <laughs> yeah, it te- well, it tends to pile up. Uh, and honestly, uh, I often find that Twitter is best because then if I answer the question for one person, it often means I'm answering it for hundreds of people at once. Uh, we've also been nice. asked if we'll be doing any more um, written sage advice columns. Mm. The answer is yes. It's just been a really busy year. Uh, but we do have uh, another uh, compilation of of questions and answers coming up, mm. uh, as well as some new uh, errata documents uh, for some of our books. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Um, that's it for this uh, segment and for this little bit. Uh, thank you very much. I'm so glad uh, Jeremy was able to answer all those questions. Those were a lot of questions, and he knows how to get at the core of what people really are asking for, as well as be illustrative in the ways that you can answer those questions for yourself, hopefully going forward. I know. It's good stuff. Thank you for everyone who participated in that chat. You all get high fives from me. Um, I am still without Shelly, so I'm going to throw it directly to our conversation, me and Shelly talking to Alex Kammer from GameholeCon. Have uh, the inimitable uh, Alex Kammer. Hello, Alex. Hello, hey, guys. Hi. That's an interesting adjective, but thank you. <laughs> There's no one like you. There's no one. There is uh, no one like uh, you. You are very maybe. unique and special. Well, I appreciate uh, that. But I got to meet Alex uh, for the first time at Origins Game Fair. Was that the first time you met him mm-hmm. as well? Yep. Yeah, and you were a We've very for a while delightful but... person. Totally. Well, I feel the same about you guys. I uh, yeah, that that was a lot of fun. It was a good time, and uh, so yeah, you uh, run Gamehole Con, which is a very interestingly, very interesting thing. How can I can't say it? <laughs> it's a very weird name for a convention. True, true. Uh, you know, this is not the first time I've been asked this question. Uh, commenting on the name, that's weird. Yeah, it's uh, true. It now needs to be your calling card. You have to tell that story yeah, whenever you. I suppose. You I suppose. So yeah, it's uh, well, uh, it's it's named after my gaming group called the Game Hole, and it is that uh, thusly named because we were in my basement for years, and so we started calling ourselves the the Game Hole, a la you know a Hobbit hole kind of thing. And uh, so you know, over the years, we you know, we've been together, gaming together for almost twenty years now. Uh, so when we started talking about making a convention and putting on a convention, uh, it had to be Game Hole Con or we weren't going to do it kind of deal. And, uh, <laughs> so that's that's how it worked out. And uh, but yeah, people don't forget our name. You know, once no. you've heard it once, that's it. You know, uh, but uh, with yeah. a name like Smuckers, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's got to be good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, I well, I, and it's true. It does nothing. stick in your head. It does. It stands out for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been kind of a it's been interesting to to uh, hear it uh, initially when we're, we're kicking around that name. Um, people are like, oh, that doesn't sound like it's going to work. So, well, <laughs> if it doesn't, it doesn't. So it goes. Um, you know, it, obviously, uh, if you're going to start a big commercial venture, that's not how you start, uh, and that's because that's not what we were doing. You know, we we're just doing this for fun, and this was a you know a joy project, a passion project, something we wanted to do because we love gaming, yeah, uh, not because we we're trying to you know, be the biggest, fanciest show in the country or anything like that. So if it didn't work, it, it wouldn't, it didn't work, but, it, but I guess, uh, it has, uh, you know, and so we're, here we are again, we're getting ready for year six. Year six. Sixth year. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, so you said yeah. you've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for 20 plus years. When, uh, what was it, what, what was your introduction? What was your first experience like playing Dungeons and Dragons and how did you get yeah. hooked? Yeah, like uh, so many kids of the 80s, I, uh, I saw the four-paneled um, four end cap at a local uh, store. And in it, they had the Player's Handbook, the Monster Manual, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and Deities and Demigods. And I looked at that and said, holy blank, what is that? You know, I was 12. This is 1982. And I thought, okay. You know, I've got. I was getting into uh, science fiction, fantasy literature, and these the covers were amazing. I said, I just have to get one of those. So I quickly, you know, mowed as many lawns as I could get my parents to pay me for, and uh, um, bought the Player's Handbook, and that was my first book in 1982. And so, like kids, you know, as a 12 year old, I didn't really know how to play, and we. I had another friend, and we're kind of. You know, trying to do it. The rules are pretty inscrutable. They still are now, quite frankly. The first edition rules are, you know, can be challenging. Yeah. Uh, and so we kicked it around, and you know, and uh, but didn't really play. We built, we wrote a lot of characters, and we kind of played. But you know, and then the basic box came out, and we played that a little bit. That made a little more sense. Um, but it wasn't really the blue, until the blue box with the dragon on the cover. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The arrow cover, uh, cover, uh, cover art was that one, and that was great. That was a little simplified, and so a couple kids over uh, lunch hour could play that in the lunchroom. That's what we did. Um, so I've been playing on and off then since the mid '80s, really. And that was in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why, you know, this is in a, a smaller town in Wisconsin. Because D and D was born here in Wisconsin, uh, that would be available on an end cap of a small convenience. Excuse me, a, 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 yeah, just a, a convenience store. Oh, you know, that was that at a convenience store. Yeah, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, just, yeah, it was really random. I remember talking to someone else who found D and D at a convenience store. Really? Yeah. I mean, they were also in Wisconsin. So yeah, they must have been. It, must it was. Been it was a. Wisconsin. It was a drunken conversation with Alex Cameron, probably. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is guy who was a lawyer and started a convention. Do you? What was the name of the convention? It was called the Game. <laughs> I don't know. I met him in Origins. Oh, <laughs> super wasted. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. I was gonna make because you're like just like every other kid. It was at an end cap at a thing. I'm like, I don't think that was true for every other kid. Uh, oh. I think it was like the cartoon or uh, anything else would be more of a an in. Yeah, I don't think uh, not too many people. Have have that memory i suppose not the the vehicle to get the book but as far as if you were if you were you know a under 20 year old and you're reading the uh dungeon master's guide the first edition dungeon master's guide and you understood that well and you have more candle power than i do because yes. it's, uh, it's <laughs> tough it's tough you know what yeah so uh, that's what i was referring to it's that that, that uh, then through the years you know change with the editions and uh um and here we are in fifth edition land, which is my favorite. I love it so much. I just am so thankful for what you guys have done. Oh, nice! I can take uh, uh, full credit for yeah, that. Yeah, what you mean, Greg Tito has done. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Brilliant job, Greg. Wonderful job. No problem. So I'm good. here for you guys. <laughs> so good. Uh, yeah. But you are also a, a collector of old TSR modules and such. Is it true that you have every single product uh, that TSR put out? It's true. 
Every one of them? Wow. Well, up to a certain point. Well, no, TSR definitely. I'm through. Uh, I don't. When when TSR transitioned to Wizards of the Coast, I'm not complete in that era. Uh, but uh, when you come, you'll see the game hole is actually a physical place, and it's located above a pub I own. And in this in this there there are three there are three rooms in the in the game hole itself. There's the main game room, and then two other uh, appended rooms. Uh, the, it's sort of a museum that's spread through these three rooms, and I have uh, a complete, not only a complete set, but I have a complete set of shrink wrap, original shrink wrap materials that I have taken me, God, it's taken me 20 years to get this stuff. So I have any product that came out in original shrink wrap still in that original shrink wrap, which for me means never been seen by anyone else's, anyone's eyes. And so I have a complete, perfect set of everything that TSR ever produced. And, uh, you know, I was That's thinking crazy. someday, I, ho- I hope it could go to a museum. You know, I hope that we can get, you know. Uh, Game uh, Home uh, Museum. Well, or or, <laughs> or someone can. Or, or if someone can do it, a, a real tabletop museum, a legit one, I would happily endow that someday. Because, I mean, it's never going to be opened. It's just sort of, you know, it just sits there. But I, but I have multiple copies of everything and uh, the rares and all that kind of stuff. So there are probably... 10 of us that are really lunatic collectors around the world and I'm certainly one of those uh, probably probably the top five when it comes to all the stuff I have I would... do the collectors kind of uh, get together and, and have like swap meets <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah there's a there's a, uh, a nice auction at GameWorldCon actually uh, as a result so it's sort of the, some of the higher end rare stuff will come up there oh wow uh, and uh we we trade, um, yeah. We all know each other, and we try to stay out of each other's way. You know, hey, Bill That's needs nice. blank. Let's just let him get this one because he needs that to complete his set or whatever. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's a nice. That's it's actually really kind of sweet. You help each other out. It's like yes, you see yes. something that you know Bill needs. You'll let Bill know. You're not just gonna buy it and be like, oh yeah, I picked this up the other day. Oh hey, Bill, I didn't. Let know. me just dangle it in I front didn't of you. Know. Bill. This is all you need to complete your collection. <laughs> oh, I'm just gonna throw out. it on the fire. <laughs> I don't even need it. I don't even need it. I don't even want it. I don't even like. D&D. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's so terrible. That's really. I like that you guys are working together though, because yes. that makes it feel like it's uh, it, it's it's less about cutthroat competition. And it's more about everybody just wants to celebrate and make sure that there's a co- living copy of these products out there. Because I'm sure there's a time, you know, 100 years from now where something will befall some of the collections and, you know, they won't be able to, to, to have those, those kind yeah. of archaeological things. I don't think things. they were keeping the records and stuff that we keep now. TSR was not? No. Yeah. Alex would probably speak to that more than we can. <laughs> well, yeah. I, in fact, this pile of stuff, if you can see, yeah, you can yeah? see that. This is a, a pile of stuff from the, from the TSR editing department from the uh, mid-90s. Uh, these are all the internal memos and so on from your from your predecessor about products, um, internal memos, rules, yes. uh, all that ah, kind of stuff. It's really great. What? It's because it's from that era, the computer era, while there were there were uh, floppy disks but no cloud. So when TSR went kaput, all that stuff got thrown away. So all we have are the few paper copies that are running around. And yeah. I got I got the set, and so they're. I had them. Uh, some friends came and scanned them. There are several real hardcore D and D historians, so of course shared that with them. You know, like John Peterson. John Peterson. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah. yeah. You know, and, uh, yeah. There are folks like that that are uh, Davy Walt and so on. You know, we they're they're writing books about this stuff, and I want to make sure that they have as much primary stuff as as I stumble into uh, when I find it. I make sure I share it. So nice. where did hey. you stumble into that? Like where where did you find this pile of memos? Well, this is from Julia Martin, who used to be a, oh, was yeah. a former employee. Julia. And so she reached out to me because she heard that I'm one of those lunatic Forgotten Realms people. And uh, uh, she had some stuff and she uh, 
was talking to me. She says, well, you sound like a real Realms fan. I'm just going to send you everything I have. I, know, I don't want this stuff anymore. I said, great. And then like, this big box showed up in my office uh, a couple of days later, and it was full of all kinds of goodies, all kinds of, uh, you know, original maps and stuff like that. Oh that there's like, I get crazy. Yeah. Well, let's put it. So Ed Greenwood, when he uh, drew the Forgotten Realms, he drew out the when original one. He was a little older than that, but not much. Uh, he so he drew them out, and they're all on eleven, eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper, and they're all attached together. So you trot it down to the library where he works in Toronto and fax them to Lake Geneva, and oh. on the other end they came out, and Jeff Grubb received them, and according to the and Ed sent some instructions. Here's how to assemble this. So they they assembled them. And they put this big collage of the Forgotten Realms map together. Well, Julia had that. That thing that came out of the fax machine. Oh, my God. And I God. have it now. So was it I've all, got, like, on one, like, roll of paper? No, it was, they came as separate sheets. Huh. They it printed out as individual sheets. Yeah, you did, right. Some of those some of those did have that, yeah. that really funny roll. Fortunately not. God, that would be a disaster. Yeah, um, right. With a little scroll. It would be like a map Yeah, scroll. and the stuff on the side, the, like, the, <laughs> the, the, the things you pull off, the old dot matrix printers that would oh, have yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I've got stuff like that, and, and when you come out, I'll show you some of these treasures. Are That's really cool. cool. So hey, I should hey, start wait, stealing wait, wait stuff. Can you just get the your uh, your cord on your headset is on your microphone? If you want, to just take the cord off and, and lay oh, it. To, you're totally right. There lay it to the side. So when you're there, you go. Perfect. Um, we had some of those things here at uh, the wizard's office that I found once. There was like a binder of old memos that they uh, – and my favorite ones were like, can we please turn the heat on in the bathrooms because the bathrooms are getting too really? cold. Where did and that come from? I don't know. It was like this binder of old memos that were sent amongst like the office politics of, of TSR uh, back Aww. on like TSR like letterhead and stuff. A cold uh, bathroom in Wisconsin. I know, right? <laughs> Who would have thought that would have occurred? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, uh, just super uh, interesting to go back into time and feel like, all right, well, this is what, you know, obviously it wasn't a huge deal, but there was like things that they were talking about amongst the office while they were creating these oh, great you know, books. I remember we had unearthed this huge binder of old headshots from the authors. Would you remember this? Were no, remember I don't that? remember that. That's They're, cool. Like all of the the uh, old TSR authors was like, like Bob. Like and Bob's was in there. Bob looked like he was eighteen. He probably, he probably was. was. <laughs> he, was old. he probably really was like twenty six, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I wonder where that went. Probably Actually. Alex probably has it. It's probably in, it's probably <laughs> in the game hall. I do not. I would have said I have it. I have it. No, I no, I don't have that one. Do That's you want? Cool, well, though. do you want it? I mean, if I find it, <laughs> is, is it valuable to you? <laughs> yeah, I might know someone who's interested. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But what I was gonna say is, I might want to like start like just kind of look going by Mike Merrill's desk once in a while. And just be like, <laughs> <laughs> I, hey, don't don't worry. I've I've cased all the all the desks. They, they, don't, um, have they don't have anything good out there. I'll, I'll enter right. some emails. I don't delete a thing. So. Here's some pencil shavings from Mike. Yeah. <laughs> this is when he was designing fifth edition. It's the it's real pencil <laughs> that wrote fifth edition. If you put all these little pencil shards back together, you can see earlier <laughs> versions. <laughs> <laughs> They're right here. That's, I, I think you got a killing. That's going to make a lot of money. I think so. Yeah. We can get Greg Tito's dude wipes. <laughs> If I if you put together a uh, a letter of authenticity that you're willing to to sign and put that up for auction, some knucklehead would pay money. Someone for that. probably would without without a doubt. I mean, yeah, and uh, yeah, for I sure. I feel like we could do that with Chris Perkins. Right. Like we could just be like, here, Chris, sneeze into this. Yeah. Perkins <laughs> yeah. tissue yeah. when he had a sinus infection <laughs> in 2000. While he was writing Curse of Strahd. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it was inspiring so, for the shambling mounds and the uh, totally. uh, oozes that were put in that. Yeah, right, exactly. You can you can make a story. I like that. Yeah. What about stuff like this, like from the uh, uh, stream of many eyes? You know, actual artifacts from things. Uh, is mm-hmm. that something that that you know, twenty years from now, people would want? Absolutely, absolutely. No question. Alex? I mean, just just look at the look at the fandom that's surrounding D and D now. I mean, that's that's all. As more and more people enter the hobby, there's much more interest, and then there are those who are, you know, collectors in any any fandom set. Uh, so absolutely, absolutely. So why do I feel like to get to the game hole, we have to crawl through a hole? Like that's oh, just a picture, like going up like a steep little ladder, and then having to like burrow through a little warren to get in there. It's it's not far from the truth. Uh, <laughs> it's in it's in a, a very old building. It's a Civil War era hotel um, where my pub's located. This one is, and uh, the you have to go up some steep stairs to get there. Uh, and because it's a historic building, we can't modify the stairs. So that's why this big suite of rooms oh. and this otherwise great space it became mine to do with what I wanted because we couldn't use it for anything else. So mm. yeah, it's kind of like that. You okay. go up some steep stairs, turn left through a door, bam, game hole. That's pretty cool. And everyone was shorter around then, so. Right. Yeah. They're all basically halflings. So did, did I make this up, or is there a really cool event happening at GameholeCon where you can sign up to play a game in the game hole with you and Merle's? That's 100% true. You guys are so awesome with the stuff you do for Extra Life and, yes. and thereby, thereby allowing us to do so much stuff with Extra Life. I mean, I got a call from the Wisconsin chapter, the head of it, and said, you guys, GameholeCon, were the biggest single contributor to Extra Life last year for the Wisconsin Children's oh. Hospital. And I couldn't oh, even believe that. Awesome. I said, well, that's freaking amazing. That. And, that, you know, you know, so much thanks to you guys for all the stuff that uh, you did with us last year. And so we're going to try to outdo it this year. And one of those, yeah, it's going to be fun. Mike uh, has actually played a game with us in the game hall previously. So has Perkins. Uh, and, uh, but uh, this year, Mike is going to run a game on Thursday night. And people who buy a ticket to this game, will I'll transport them all over to the game hall, food and beverage them, and uh, we will uh, have a game up there that Mike runs. I think I'm going to uh, sign up. You can sign up. I want to sign up. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds <laughs> really it's fun. Gonna be pretty, it's going to be really awesome. And but Shelly, you, you know, you're going to see the game hole on Wednesday night. That's the I special know. guest reception, and I, you're going to yeah. You're as gonna, a special guest of game hole, yes, oh, I'm going. That's you are a guest. I know it's totally triggered imposter syndrome. <laughs> I didn't even know I had. I mean, I knew I was neurotic, but I didn't know. Yeah, it's how ridiculous. neurotic? That's most of the community, though. Really it doesn't, doesn't believe that uh, 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 that. There's all this amazingness that's happening around around D and D right now. It's crazy. It's true. It's true. So when when for people who uh, are unfamiliar, when uh, when is Game Hole Con? Yeah, it's uh, this year. It's November eight through eleven in Madison, Wisconsin, and we're always in early November. Uh, we picked that not because it's the uh, it's actually a pretty nice time of year here, uh, but uh, to stay out of everyone else's way of all the other shows that are happening in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, man, it's it's there are so many cons these days that. You know, literally, you can go to one every weekend if you're so inclined. Um, so we had to uh, go to uh, early November, and it's worked out really well. It's kind of kind of closes the season for industry folks. You know, you start off whatever, and you end up at uh, at GHC at the end of the year. That's pretty nice. I like that. It's the best three days in gaming. 
Well, now it's four. Now Uh-oh. We're, Uh-oh. We're, I got to change your tagline. So now I'm going to get sued. Yeah, so, <laughs> right. yeah. Well, if you know any lawyers. In, in, the, in the upper Midwest. <laughs> there we go. Best four, four days in the upper Midwest. Well, uh, I've, I've always heard great things about Game Hole Con. And I was, I've heard it's like the best run show and everyone feels really special being there. The, the consumers as well as the people who attend as your guests. And it, then you told me when we were at Origins that it's all volunteers. It's just it's you and your gaming group that are actually right. doing this. You all have day jobs, and you're just yeah. putting this together in your free time. Pretty much, pretty much. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we just built the show that we wanted to go to. I mean, that's simply as that. I mean, it's mm. just, you know, we wanted to come and uh, have a be you know have it be uh, high energy and joyful. You know, that's what a gaming convention should be. And that when you show up, they actually have your packet. With your name on it, properly yeah. spelled, uh, and they have your tickets, and the games start when they're supposed to start, and everything's. You have a good map to see where you're going, and you know it, it seemed pretty basic. Uh, and then in the game hall itself, we have myself and other professionals who we've just we played together forever, and you kind of look around the table, and thought, man, we got a pretty good group of people here, accountants, and you know so on to to do this, and uh, it's worked out really well. And uh, we also can't thank enough all the all the volunteers that that come and help us. I mean, it, we, the first two we ran by ourselves and thought, holy cow, this oh my is God. not <laughs> sustainable. This is not going to work. And, uh, so we got, uh, we started take, getting volunteers and man, it's great. We, it's so much, so much easier to have help. Um, obviously, uh, and, uh, you know, we keep growing 40% every year. So this year, you know, we had wow. 400 some year one and this year will be over 4,000. It's just, bleh, it's over you know, 4,000. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. wild. That is crazy. That's pretty wild. Yeah, but uh, that is a crazy yeah. growth. So, who yeah. are some of the? I mean, other than myself, who are some <laughs> other um, very exciting guests coming? Very cool and stylish. <laughs> yeah, exciting guests. Yes. Well, well before, before we came on, uh, you know, Nathan was 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 haranguing me about <laughs> essentially clearing out your offices that week because yeah. all the D and D folks come. So we have basically a whole D and D design team that comes. We also have uh, so that's Merrells, Perkins, Crawford, uh, Lindsay, the whole gang. We bring them all, and uh, Kate's coming too, which is awesome. Uh, Let's see. All the uh, AL admins are coming, uh, wow. which are such a great group of people, and they do so much for the hobby. To they're out there soldiering, you know, through conventions every, uh, you know, all the time. And so we bring them out and try to treat them as well as we can to just to thank them for all the what they do for for, uh, That's for the hobby. Amazing. And uh, but then you know like uh, you know some dude named Steve Jackson's coming. Don't know. Um, yeah, why would you? Uh, let's see who else. Monty Cook is kicking around, I think. Shanna's coming. Um, who else? Um, we have, uh, let's see, there are uh, 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 Scott Gray, who is my editor, actually, and he oh, does some work for you guys. Yes, he does. Yeah, I, uh, I've never I've never actually met him. He's edited a few of my modules that I've written, and he's such oh, a wow. good guy. that Yeah, so I wanted to, to bring him out, so I'm excited to meet him. That's one of my personal favorites. I can't wait to, to hang out with him a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, that's what gaming conventions I think are cool for is like actually, you, you usually face you know, to face yeah right you have these online uh, uh, yeah. uh, connections with so many people but the, when you get face to face it's like a completely different thing right yeah like that's what Origins was for, for, for us and you it was like yeah. oh yeah right. that's Alex <laughs> yeah but we you know folks like Pat Rothfuss and we, we have we're very fortunate to have he's the, going to the, yeah, 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 Mr. Pat. Wow. He'll be there. He'll probably play. So we have uh, a full suite of streaming games uh, Friday and Saturday. 
Uh, and uh, Pat will definitely play in Chris Perkins' Saturday night game. He always wants to be part of that. And uh, John Kavalik is here. You know, he's a neighbor of mine, essentially. He's just up the road from where I live. And oh, he's I a hell of a guy. Yeah, he does the, you know, the, have you seen the, you've probably seen the plushies that we do every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a, a, char- a plushie for charity. So we did an owl bear the year one and oh. a boule year two and a mimic last year. And uh, this year we're doing the Odiug, and it's really cute and cool oh, and fun. Oh, cute. And those, I just got those actually, they just hit, hit shores, uh, uh, recently. So I'm really excited about that. So John, anyway, the Munchkin author, uh, excuse me, Munchkin artist, uh, designed them, uh, designs them each year. So it's pretty oh, great. Oh, that's so cool. That is great. Yeah. Look at you getting your swag in ahead of time. That's, I know. I was that's just amazing. Thinking, like, I was like, what? You, got his stuff. <laughs> you already got it already? That's like six months early. You are not sweating <laughs> it two days before the show opens. <laughs> it's not a real convention. No. That's, Too hey, well that run. is. That is the way is to advance preparation is the only way I can still practice law and run a convention and be involved <laughs> and be, be a reasonable parent and all that stuff. And well, yeah, and, and train exactly. for and be a competitive. What did you call it? Competitive. Oh, uh, yeah, trainer, I do. Uh, tough, tough mutters. I compete and I try to win. Oh, those. no way. Really? Yep. 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 I got one. My my event is uh, mid-September this year. So I'll be up in Toronto trying to beat other old geezers my age <laughs> i'm just trying to win my age class i can't i can't i can't beat 20 year olds but i can beat you know the, the 40 year olds i can you know i'm pretty competitive nice do yeah. you have to wear you know chain mail and and a quarter staff to make it oh real? my god that, that would, would be, be so awesome. hard there was like a <laughs> fantasy themed one a fantasy theme mutter seems pretty legit yeah yeah should be some jousting yeah that'd be good some uh, jousting. That would be that's not dangerous at all no, because no. <laughs> no. when you're running through mud, yeah, yeah, you want a, a, you know a two thousand pound animal to be barreling down on you. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. No. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Well, the other thing that is uh, really great that you guys have been a really big help with is our kids track. Mm. Uh, you know, the, all the all the other folks in the in the game hall have kids of varying ages, and I've got a six and a ten year old, and uh, just seeing my my little girl is excited beyond belief because she's going to run a game of dungeon. I board game. You just I think you tweeted about that or something. That I, is she, amazing. She is just she can't wait. She's literally counting down the days like oh. it's Christmas. You know, it's Aww. so cute. And uh, and then last year I got to see her play a game of Dungeons and Dragons at a convention setting. She's around the table. I just it made me weep, quite frankly. I couldn't believe it. Uh, so anyway, that's a big Aww. deal for us. And is we really she your take older that child or older. the younger? Okay. Yeah, o- older, older. My little guy's now he's gonna be seven this year so he's all fired up because he can play by himself he can read reasonably well now so uh yep. he's really excited he can play now uh um but anyway we have a full you know developed kids track with uh, lots of kids who come and play uh and uh lots of great games and you guys have given us tremendous stuff to to prize them with as have other publishers so these kids get this massive bag like last year they each got a D starter set nice. now in addition to all the this other do? stuff yeah it's just so cool and uh mm. So that was uh, that was pretty awesome. And We're that's training another... up training up new dungeon masters. That's what we do with those dungeon yeah. sets. I feel like yeah. I might like that thing that we haven't talked about that I'm going to be doing at Gamehole Con. What? I feel like is that would be thing? good for the. I mean, it is good for kids actually. Like we should give them some of those. Yeah. Can I be more cryptic? I know, right? You're like <laughs> let that thing that, that we haven't thing talked about. That we haven't announced yet that oh. Nathan's dying to spoil. Well, don't be all crazy. And cause all this mayhem about it, all right? Just make it very <laughs> normal. Walk it back, Shelly. Walk it back. <laughs> I can't. You know what I was thinking about? This will surprise you. What? Kids. Because, like, Quinn's about to have his fifth birthday party. He's having a slumber party. I'm like, oh, just in, a, like, a year, a couple of years. Like, it could be a D&D party. I feel like that's my audience. 
I could DM for kids. Oh. Not adults. Like kids, first of all, I don't need to know really any rules because they're not <laughs> going to follow them anyway. Truth. And they don't know what's happening. And it's just like they just want to, to talk and tell stories. And my job would really be quite minimal in the whole thing. I would just like make things up and help them. Yeah. So I feel like I can DM do for that. kids. I think it's, that's what I want to you know, do. I've run a lot of games for kids, and it's very different skill set. I run, a, I do the con circuit, and I, I fortunately get asked to be guests at shows, so I run a lot of games for grown-ups, of course. But then running for kids, it requires a level of spontaneity, yeah. And uh, because you get the stuff out of leftist of left field, yes. right, that they want to do, and it's great. And you just got to be able to roll with it, and just you know, having a really defined story is meaningless. You don't really need that. That's what you just I mean. have to have. Like, I don't think yeah. I'd have to prep at all. I would just, I mean, a little, but yeah. they would just kind of take it to. Yeah. Where it's gonna go, and it's use really like fun. use their input to to guide the story more yes. than anything else. Yes. Yeah. All right. You want to go to Fart Town? We're going to Fart Town. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what it could mm-hmm. be. <laughs> Expedition to Fart Town. Oh my gosh! Then you could be like uh, Guy Fieri, where like we're instead of Flavor Town, it's like we're going to Fart Town. <laughs> yeah, so I can just be really screamy when I talk and have like frosted uh, tips yeah. oh, and the... your sunglasses on the back of your and head. And just look like I probably have bo. <laughs> <laughs> Well, be apologies great, to Guy Fieri who listens from, to this podcast. From the, when, when you get a parental call about the, the game night at, at the Maz Noble household, that'd be it's fun. It's going to happen. Yeah. Would you do the Fart We're, Town I'm hearing about? We did, are, you, did you go to Fart Town? We are going to get calls after the slumber party, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I already know it. That sounds like fun, though. You should totally organize that. I'll send uh, uh, Fiona and Edna to, to play with you. Well, I'd probably lean a little heavily on Edna because I would probably get panicky and then be like, Edna, just take it over. Just do it. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She's my seven-year-old, and she's so she's like your uh, uh, six going on seven-year-old who's like just up to reading, getting into it now. And now I want to to go full force, but I have my five-year-old who wants to do everything that the seven-year-old does. So she's not quite at that reading level. I think once they both get to, I think nine and seven, it'll be See, great. Do they have to know? Like in the game, I'm envisioning, I'm not seeing much reading at all. Like really simple character sheets and just. Rolling dice, yeah, but just oh, like yeah. a d twenty. Alex that's, knows, right? They don't need to. That'd be great. Okay. No, that'd be great. We're that'd just going to talk. We're just I mean, talk. I I understand uh, the uh, the problem that you have, Greg. Too, my little guy is so now bent out of shape because Vivian is running a game that oh. he's he says, well, why don't I get to run a game? And so what the compromise is that uh, he and Vivian are going to joint run oh. a game of uh, Hirelings: The Ascent, which is a really cute game. It's you're basically hired to be um, uh, you carry the the hero's treasure out of the out of the this board game, and you ha- there's a, a, a the dragon breeze a ball of fire, and you have to get out before the fire catches you. And it's it. it's not nearly as terrifying. Cute. It's really cute. You don't fight monsters. You roll to avoid them, and you know and you, all these silly things happen. And so uh, that, that he's uh, he's been mollified now. I have peace in the valley, at least on that front. Nice because he'll be like, nice nice of we can do it together. That is very nice. That's a good big sister. Yeah. Yeah, She's got her dungeon game. Yeah. But now I want to play in the dungeon that she'll be running. Uh, that sounds pretty fun. I know. Is it, it just well, for kids? It, it, it is, but... Uh, but I'm yeah, a kid at heart. She, she will destroy you. That's what my point is. She will absolutely destroy you. So Jeff McGarry, the guy who created Dungeon, has come to our show a couple of times, and he'll be there again this year. Nice. Jeff's a really nice guy. and I, ha- I So a couple of years ago, I, f- I actually filmed Vivian playing... Uh, him heads up in dungeon, and she absolutely destroyed him because she has the the wizard character down 
uh, for about six moves to end the game. Oh. Just with, with reasonable di- reasonable dice rolls. If she's more than 50%, she's going to win. And uh, oh. Yeah. I did learn. not do any of those things. We just played Dungeon recently. Right? I, I saw, saw that. I, saw I had that. no treasure. I got one piece of treasure and then immediately lost it uh, on the next turn. I'm not going to lie. You were a little pouty pants. <laughs> <laughs> I was rolling really poorly. It happens. And then afterwards, you guys like tried to take my win away from me. No, we didn't. What are you talking about? You said I wasn't being a good sport about winning. I, I don't, did, I, did I say that? Yeah, you guys all were like, remember we had a vote? Like, well, who thinks she should not win because she's not being a good sport about it? And everyone raised their hands. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, really? Yeah. Because you were probably still crying about losing <laughs> Palum, do you remember that? Do you I remember like hating you on Shelly? sitting right next to me when that <laughs> happened. Palum was definitely and eyeing your pile did, of treasure. Did your hand go up when, when yeah, he voted I'd lost. You got off the island. My win has a little asterisk. This is where your love of reality television is used against you. You were voted off the island. I was voted off the dungeon. Yeah, you can't do it anymore. I know I won in my heart. (laughs) You did good. You had like a lot of treasure, like very early on. I did. Yeah. I was, well, it's because I've stayed in levels one and two. And you, yeah, exactly. I know my place. And collected it all. I did. I know. Cleaned out the room. She, you got a magic sword in like the first roll too, which certainly helped. Mm. That that didn't hurt. That changed things, right? Yeah. Because that's a plus one throughout the whole thing. And then you had another one, like, right after that. But Vivian might be able to give you some tips, sounds like. I think so. Yeah, I need to know what that secret way is with the wizard to go (laughs) down. Because that's what I try to do. I try to go south into the most hardest part of the dungeon first. Uh Uh, And then my first monster was, like, a red dragon and then immediately died. Okay. You have to step to level four as soon as you can. Uh Fight that one monster. Get to level five into the hallway. Use your teleport card. Take to level six, so then you've basically that's that's three moves. You're in level six then, so you get there before anyone else, and then that's where the wizard class is built to to win there. Oh. But yeah, you still have to be able to beat the red dragon. You still have to roll. You still have to roll. It's usually a seven or higher. You know. Yeah, your yeah. rolls weren't. It wasn't. It I wasn't you. It was the dice. Nah, it was bad. It was bad all around. Because <laughs> I I tried to go through this. I was trapped by the secret door like two or three times. Oh uh, yeah, he couldn't find it to save us. He was like, I, was I like, feel I know like it's there's there. a door here. I'm a wizard. <laughs> I should know. <laughs> that was my role playing. That was really good. <laughs> I felt like I was in a box. I'm in a mime. I'm in a mime. I've been trapped okay. in a mime. Help! Help! Does it look real? Alex, does it look real? It's it look so like real. I'm like so real. Coming Except through your for computer yeah, screen. Yeah, like you just look like you're in a gelatinous ball of some sort. But that's cool. Like, maybe you know. More D and D, anyway. That's true. You're the sorceress right. trapped in the wizard ball. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's the next title of my next book. It's true. So you mentioned. Uh, uh, I want to go back to a couple of minutes ago. You were talking yes. about uh, modules that you were writing. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, you guys wrote such a wonderful rule set uh, with fifth edition that it got Again. me. Yeah, me and Shelley. Yeah, I know. I know. You guys. I am. I'm just. I'm yeah, giving credit. All, we're all credits due. Uh, Our pen names are Jeremy Crawford and Mike Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exactly, exactly. <laughs> I want to be Jeremy. <laughs> His shirts are more pressed. That's why I can see why that. Would be. That's true. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, you know, I've been playing this stuff for a long time. I've written stuff, but it's always been for just the the uh, just for my group. Uh, so then, when you know, Chris was teasing the existence of the OGL at the first game con. He's like, we're talking about it. And a couple years later, finally, the OGL hit. And as soon as that did, and you guys created the DMs Guild, uh, I was in and uh, started writing things. So we have a little imprint called Gamehole Publishing. Wow. And we, we, uh, we produce modules. Uh, we've produced uh, Ed Greenwood's written 
three for us. I've written, I'm on my third, and we have, so I think we're approaching 10 different modules, and they're available in game stores. They're in distribution. What? Wait, uh, what? This is yeah. another thing you do? Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that there was, I didn't even know this part. I didn't either. <laughs> he he just mentioned it like a throwaway comment. I didn't like, know that was my little publishing imprint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I feel like it. Uh, um, well, the, You've got uh, so the, much going on. It's so cool. I that's know. all. It, well, I appreciate that. The uh, Actually, just today I finished, I had a kind of a slow afternoon, so I was able to finish my uh, Adventure League module for Gamehole Con, uh, which we have, uh, we get to play in the Border Kingdoms. You guys gave us exclusive right to uh, for a specific part of the Forgotten Realms called the Border Kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we produced a big gazetteer that's out now available in, on the DMs Guild. And we have 11 total modules that'll be coming out for AL players uh, at GameholeCon. And I just finished mine. I just did the edits today. Uh, my wife actually does my proofreading and it was really awesome reading Aww. her. Her 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 her, uh, her question marks about stuff like she doesn't understand. She doesn't play D anD D. Like I, I'd make reference to something and she'd underline and question mark it. Like what's a you know glyph of warning you know whatever. But uh, that would be hard yeah. to edit or even proof read some if you don't know D anD D. Like I all like the, the, the weird spellings. But at the same time, I feel like that might be an asset because that means oh. you're not really spell checks. You know, because they say like proofreaders. Uh, uh, one trick that they use, uh, I don't know if your wife uses this or not, but like you actually read a sentence backwards so that oh. you're not just reading it and like right. understanding it immediately without so seeing see the errors. Yeah, you can actually take a little bit more oh. care with each you know thing to kind of get it. Uh, so she, I feel like she was good for that. Absolutely, and she's awesome at uh, the, the, her ability to uh, – she's one of these nerds who will read a book, uh, a uh, – uh, published Freedom. book, and uh, well, well, but, 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 but we'll highlight highlight errors that she finds in no published way. books uh-huh. and things like aha, got him. Does she you send know, a note this. back to the publisher? <laughs> no, no, directly <laughs> to the author, which is weird. She no, also like she, she, she's to the author. Yeah. I found a. Uh, I was reading Troy Denning's uh, first book in the in the Pentad uh, uh, Prism Pentad from uh, uh, Dark Sun. Uh, I was reading that. And I was like, oh, yeah, we published this. I had it on my shelf for, like, years. Uh, but I'm like, oh, yeah, now it's part of Wizards of the Coast. Already. And uh, I was noticing all those errors, and they are there, too. And I was like, oh, man, I should tell Troy about this. I'm like, wait, no, why would I do that? I'm going to tell <laughs> Shelley because you were probably the one that were uh, – I was. I probably worked on novels at that time. You probably did. Well, you should tell – I don't know who's editor. They was. weren't bad copy mistakes because they were, like – I was, like – uh, I think it was supposed to be a he, but it was a B, like B-E instead of H-E. No, it, it, was, that, it was supposed to be B. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they do it in Athis. It's how they pronounce that. That's it's it. totally different. Yeah, it's pronounced he. I believed you for, <laughs> but like, it's spelled for like, like a 0.5 seconds. I was like, oh, is that true? <laughs> I did actually sound really convincing, did. didn't I? Yeah. No, no, no. That was like your categories voice of like, no, that's the, that's, that's the definition. <laughs> that's right. My balderdash. <laughs> your balderdash. That's yep. Um. Anyway, you were saying. <laughs> well. No, so yeah, that's uh, the uh, so I do I get to write some stuff and that's really cool and I appreciate you guys letting me into underneath the tent a little bit to uh, pr- we can produce our own modules and then write all the stuff for Adventure League, which is awesome. We have a huge AL hall at uh, as you'll see, Shelley, when you come. Uh, we're it's either the biggest or very it's bigger than Origins, put it that way, the Adventure League hall. And uh, what? Yeah, yeah. Didn't you really, say really that there's going to be like 55 tables or something like that? Or that was there'll really- be there'll be mid 70s. Wow. Oh my God. That's yeah, a lot so, of tables. Yes. Yeah, it's really big. It's really big. And, uh, yeah, it's so uh, we, we get to write all this content. And you guys, you know, give us all these premieres and the epics and the open. I mean, it's, it's a gong show. It's great. It's so fun. When so, you say we, who's writing all of this? 
Uh, well, uh, some of the usual suspects, like Sean Merwin is one okay. of our authors. He's writing something. Uh, several of the admins are uh, writing things for us. Uh, then some of the f- other guys in the game hole are, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's all spread out. It's not – I'm only writing one. I committed to one four-hour one, which I've gotten done. Now it's – I'm moving See, on. so far so. ahead of I his know, deadlines. Right? Oh, you got to, man. That's really weird. We, we got a lot to learn. So a lot of <laughs> lawyers seem to have this crazy creative streak – as well, a lot of uh, lawyers are authors. Did you ever notice that? Like my you friend like Kim. John Grissom. And John Grissom. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Two of us. No, Terry two Brooks. Three. Terry Brooks. Terry Brooks. Terry Brooks. Terry Brooks I didn't even know yeah. he was a lawyer. That's true. Yeah. All right. It, it seems like there's a lot. What, what's what's going on there? Why? I don't know. I don't know, man. I, uh, that's I mean, you tough write one. a I lot. Think, well, to... exactly. I basically am a professional writer at the end of the day, uh, but just very different kind of stuff and would be horribly boring to read. But I've been published a lot for a lot of different ways through law. But uh, so then once you have, you know, writing is just a matter of practice, just like anything else. And, uh, you know, I, I was pleased that the stuff I'm writing for D&D has trans- transitioned pretty well and doesn't read like a legal brief. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. I, I think that it's it's also fun, you know. Yeah, the stuff that we write on the day to day level is pretty pretty dry and pretty you know, um, very very purposeful writing for for a, a a given outcome. You know, you're not trying to write something that someone will read and say, "Well, that's really well written." That's not the purpose. You're you're writing to win in the law. Uh, here, you get to write for fun and enjoyment and pleasure. It's a whole different thing, and so that's why a lot of the uh, successful novelists, uh, I think they. Um, that's why they can make the transition so well because it's so, and they're, they're also so uh, prolific. Look at these guys. They just, you know, pound out books when you're used to writing, yeah. uh, you know, every day is part of your job. It, uh, it's not, deadlines are not that big of a deal, which I think some folks struggle with, um, you know, who come from a different industry, you know, to try to try to write and meet deadlines. It's hard. Yeah, but, for sure. Yeah, that's my two cents. Probably completely wrong, but there are you go. You- do you DM for your group? Are you the DM? Mm-hmm. I am running Tomb of Annihilation Whoa. right now. Yes. Annihilation. Yes, yes. And I love it. I love it. I, I, we, we rotate in, the, in, our, in our game group. Uh, but uh, that's, I'm up now and I'm running Tomb of Annihilation and I'm just having a blast. Uh, I, uh, I think it's delightful. Um, and I was, just, I was telling Chris that uh, at Origins, uh, some of the mechanics in the module are great. And I was actually able to be part of uh, Steve Winter's playtest group when he was just putting his pieces together. Oh, oh no way. Yeah, yeah. So that was fun. So I got to play most of it before I started running it, which was great. Um, and so we're almost done with it. And so now we're eagerly anticipating your stuff coming out that's uh, in August. That'll be great. Waterdeep. That's right. Are you going to play as a uh, barrister in the town of Waterdeep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I probably could, actually. That's that's not a bad idea. I've always yeah, I love taking character concepts and making them real life professions somehow, like a bard who's a who's a who's a theater manager. Or a, uh, a a lawyer who's actually a warrior at heart. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Or the uh, the thief import exporter is one of my favorite. Yeah, you know, types, of, types of characters. That's yeah. Yeah, like from thief. the come on from the Belgariad. I always thought I always loved that character. He's like, I'm just a merchant. I don't. I'm not. I don't do anything wrong. I'm just moving stuff from here to there. I just happen to be traveling with people who move from here to there. Also. <laughs> exactly. 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 I love that character. Very cool. Well, if people want to yeah. get uh, uh, more information on GameholeCon and perhaps purchase some tickets, how could yeah. they go do that? Yeah, it's uh, our site, uh, GameholeCon.com. Um, 
again, with a unique name, you can just kind of misspell it and you'll get there. Yeah. Uh, the the Google, Google will get you there. Turn safe um, search on, though, before you do that. <laughs> that's probably fair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and yeah, we have actually now's a good time. Badges are on sale, but uh, events have not opened yet. So that happens in mid-August or so. That's oh, cool. when people register for events. So in the next thirty days is a great time to buy a badge. And then we have we have a games list that's up. You know, we have over two thousand individual gaming events and building every day. We keep getting more stuff in. Oh my god. Uh, it's crazy. Well, we have, you know, Two Dungeon is there, too. Oh, yeah, so that's the other get, thing. That's we have a full suite of Two Dungeon. Yeah, I'm one of the owners of True Dungeon. I mean, we talked about that. At, we talked Did about we? that at Origins. Yeah, at Origins. Not, yeah. On, this. Not on this. No, no. no but, uh, yeah, but uh, so, yeah, we have, uh, we'll have three full True Dungeon uh uh, dungeons to do, and uh, that's a big part of our show. Uh, so yeah, you know, grab a badge and, and enjoy the games list. It's pretty awesome. I wish uh, it's a show. I wish I could go to attend. You wish that it. you could just have fun there instead of running around. I mean, and- are you? Yeah, like being able to go and sit and play Car Wars with Steve Jackson. I mean, that's just still, I'm having a hard time getting my brain around that as a thing that's possible. Or, uh, you know, playing D&D with any of your folks. That's just, what a treat, you know? Um, so, all right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Shelly's cool. Oh, I'm not. I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, oh, never. I'm totally, I'm, <laughs> I'm, oh, no. I'm totally going to sit in one of your games, Shelly, by the way. There's just a 0% chance that that won't happen. Yeah. I'm one of the super secret games. Super secret. Oh, I have, I have 100% confidence in my ability to play that game with you. That's going to be great. And late-breaking addition to Gamehole Con. Oh, right. Rob Davio is going. <gasps> Did you know it's the same weekend that Betrayal Legacy releases? There is. He will be there to play with you. Legacy of news happening. Yes. That. Yes. That's crazy. He will be there on some panels, but also yep. to play Betrayal Legacy. Oh, with people. I have a question about this card. Oh, I don't know. Let's ask the guy who designed it. Are there going to be people who are going to be playing, like, you know, from beginning to end at no. Game Hall Con? That'd be really fun. That would be. Because they could get a copy, right? There. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I hope so. We, yeah, there should be people oh, yeah. selling yeah. the products oh, yeah. there. I'm going to oh, yeah. do that you're with Rob. <laughs> it's like, sorry, Rob, you're, you're uh, uh, you I know. We're locked actually, into playing with me all weekend long. I signed up for this, man. I signed up. You got to do it. <laughs> you got to do it. I got my ticket right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well be fun. you know, the the uh, last, give the wrong impression, we have a heavy D&D and RPG show but we have a strong board game presence too it's about 30 percent maybe 35 percent like we have guests like eric lang uh you know so we have other board game guests too that come and and they do their thing uh and uh, we have a lot of miniatures as well but uh that's D &D is our single biggest event and we're probably 55 total 55 percent rpg so there you go that's great so you're not gonna be yeah you won't be by yourself shelly there'll be a lot of board game folks. I kind of wanted to be by myself. <laughs> That's why you were going. <laughs> no, I'm excited. I've, I've, I've heard wonderful things. So It's going to be great. Awesome. Well, cool. Thanks so much uh, for being on, Alex, and talking about it. How can people find out about you, though, and, yes. and all the collecting and say if they have a super rare thing and they want to find out more about it, maybe they can ask you some questions. Well, uh, first of all, anyone who contacts GameholeCon at the contact at. It's this guy who answers it. Hey. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's how big of an organization we are. Uh, also <laughs> on Twitter, uh, I think my handle is GHC and Tacos. Yes, Alex it is. Kammer. Yeah, you'll find me there. Uh, that's I'm actually doing this thing where I'm posting, going through the history of TSR, and uh, each day I'm posting a new thing in that year. And so we're just getting started with 1987. 
just a couple days ago, that's when the we, I posted the Forgotten Realms setting when it was released in 1987. And nice. so I'm working through that. So you can... If you uh, follow me, you'll see a new thing every day as I put uh, something from my collection. It's actually a, a photograph of a thing I have That's sequentially cool. through time. I love that. Uh, and it's been pretty fun. Uh, and people seem to really dig it. I, yeah. I, you know, I, did, I started on kind of a lark, and it's been really popular. It's pretty fun. Is there a so. hashtag for that? Do you no, have I don't. I, no, I wish I did. Kids Shucks. No days. hashtag. Kids these days. But you have, it's your Instagram account that does that, right? Whoops. Uh, no, just Twitter. Oh, it was Sorry. Twitter. Yeah, I thought well, someone else is doing. Oh, it's vintage RPGs is doing a uh, uh, something similar, but doing all kinds of stuff, not just TSR stuff. That's yeah, right. that fellow's bopping around. He's going all over the place. Yeah, he's got great stuff too. That's yeah, I know. I love I love seeing it all because it's like it's transporting into another era. It's great. But just yeah. think, Tito, something of yours that you um, an email that you wrote twenty years from now could be highly sought after. I'm going to print out all of my of emails. Collecting. Oh crap! My emails are terrible. <laughs> Don't print those out. Are they going to be as remembered as the bathroom? Uh, yes. It's getting too cold. It's too memos cold in the bathroom <laughs> from the TSR days. Yeah, yeah, they are. I gotta start saving all your emails. I think a lot of our uh, back and forths are people are going to really want those. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we could publish a book. We have a, we have a few really good email threads that have made me laugh like out loud. No way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> right. <laughs> you were like, what? <laughs> Send them to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for calling in. I can't wait for more people to check out Game Hall Con. Yep. And uh, you uh, are, are a wealth of knowledge of all things TSR, so I'm sure I'll, uh. I'll get you on the horn when uh, when I need something. <laughs> like, I need this module. It's stat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, great seeing you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, you too. Right, thank cool. you. Thanks, Alex. See you later. Yeah. See you. <laughs> Oh, listening to that interview makes me miss Shelly even more. She's on vacation for so long, I can't believe it. Uh, but we will have to make do. She uh, is an amazing uh, asset to this podcast. It feels weird me doing this all by myself. So if you are feeling weird out there in podcast land, I'm with you. I'm totally on the same page. It makes a lot of sense. I feel like we should be listening to Hollow Notes just in the background just so we can feel Shelly's you know, uh, a mantra and uh, come come through us because she's a man eater. Uh, so that's about all we have for this episode of Dragon Talk. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about what goes on in the Dungeons and Dragons universe, uh, you can watch what's going on on twitch.tv slash dnd. We record these very podcasts mostly in front of the camera on Mondays, uh, 2 p.m. Pacific time uh, to around 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific time. So come join the fun and watch all that magic happen. Uh, we also have lots of other fun stuff going on here on the, the D&D Twitch channel, including Mike Merle's Happy Fun Hour, where he designs and talks about why he's designing or how he's designing the things that he's uh, putting together. Uh, that is on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, then we also have lots of fun streaming shows going on. A couple of them that I want to highlight are uh, Dark and Dicey, which happens on Mondays at 7 p.m. Pacific time with uh, the Dungeon Master KG Tang, Nathan Sharp, uh, Sat Callison, Hunter Hughes, uh, Christina V, and Anna Brisbane. Great players going on there. Uh, I love what they've been doing, uh, including playing a game of D&D inside a game of D&D. Wow. That is some meta stuff, and uh, I can't wait to see where uh, KG takes it from there. Uh, there's also a really cool thing uh, on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific time called Assassin, where uh, Koibu, the Dungeon Master, has one-on-one sessions, different assassin targets each week. Uh, so that's always fun. Uh, 
not many people jump into playing Dungeons and Dragons with just one player and one dungeon master, but it can be very exciting, I guess is the word, you know, it's, it's, it's more of like what you want to do with a solo video game where you, you don't have to worry about working within a group. You can make your decisions on yourself and can sometimes uh, lead to some disastrous results or sometimes some really great, uh, you know, collaborative storytelling to, still with just two people. So that's really cool. I'm glad that Neil, uh, uh, AKA Koibu is doing that uh, for Assassin. So go check that out if you're interested. Uh, Trapped in the Birdcage is back. On Thursdays at 5 p.m. Pacific time with Dungeon Master Holly Conrad with amazing players Jimmy Wetzel, Anna Prasa Robinson, Chad Quant, and Hadil Al-Masari. Uh, they are in Sigil going through some fun Planescape stuff because Holly Conrad loves Planescape. And uh, maybe maybe uh, they'll have some more crossovers between what's happening with her and Baby Strix. And then finally, uh, Rivals of Waterdeep is going on uh, 10 a.m. on Sundays. Great group of folks, some who have played D&D for a long time, some who are brand new to it. Uh, we just spoke to uh, Serena Marie and Brandon Sinesse. I think that will be coming up in a podcast episode very soon, but it was great to talk to them, and uh, they do great work. So uh, get into it and find out more about what's going on with their characters as uh, they struggle through the story told to them uh, by Dungeon Master Aram Vartian. So good stuff there. And then, of course, 6 p.m. Pacific time on on Sunday is Hell's Bells. Uh, Dungeon Master Mazmataz is doing very well. They are amazing. And uh, uh, you should check out that group if you want to see more Planescape content going on. It is all happening on Hell's Bells. So good stuff all around. I am going to get off of this microphone and get to my next meeting. But in the meantime, I want to make sure that everyone knows that there are... Rocks falling and everyone's dead.